0: i sure. sure.
1: Franchiseography: the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Nick Menez. I'm Scott Corelli. Today we are starting a brand new miniseries on the X-Men franchise with the first film released in 2000, 20th Century Fox's X-Men. And we have a guest joining us to talk about evolution, mutation and yellow spandex is X-Men fan and YouTube wizard Wally Wallbacker. Thanks for being here, Wally.
2: Oh, well, thank you for having me. I heard there is an X-Men conversation happening, and as my natural state of being uh, is always wanting to talk about X-Men, I figured this was the right place to be.
0: Having had many a conversation about X-Men over drinks with you, I knew you would be a perfect person to bring in for this miniseries. And I'm glad to have you kick it off, because I think there's a lot to talk about here. I think this movie starts the whole trajectory for the future of the franchise at Fox, but uh, Wally, where did you where did you get started with the X Men? Why are you such a big X Men fan? You know, what are your thoughts on the Fox X Men franchise in general and on this movie? Do you remember the first time you saw it? All of those questions.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean the answer is yes, uh, and let me unpack that <laughs> very very loaded yes. I mean, I started my fandom of the X Men like most other kids of my generation with the cartoon show, the animated show in 1992. Uh, I was obviously aware of them, but as a Seven-year-old, when those first came out, I wasn't out in the comic stores buying my own books. You know, Whenever I'd hit a comic shop, uh, it would be like, ooh, look at these awesome things. But because 1992 was a pretty dark time for the majority of mainstream comics, my parents were more apt to buy me Captain Planet, issue number one, than anything from the major two publishers. But when the cartoon show came around, it was just a revelation. It was the level of storytelling, the level of... You know care and craftsmanship for characters and family really connected with me in ways that i didn't really understand at the time as a seven year old but it uh it grew on me and i mean I can trace back so much of how I enjoy taking in all forms of storytelling to needing to see every episode of x men every Saturday morning because it was uh, serialized you you got a little bit of a previously on, but you know you really wanted to follow through and then as you are Watching these characters grow and evolve over time, I was developing my first sort of deep emotional connection to fictional characters. There was an arc where I think it was season two where uh, Mr. Sinister was held camp in the Savage Land. And uh, in the Savage Land, he had his experiments and he had uh, his goons out there and he would essentially goad Xavier Magneto to come down there, trap them. The rest of the team had to come find them uh, and they all got captured and they had the, I don't know if it was the mutant inhibitor collars or there was something nascent to the Savage Land that turned off their powers. But there was uh, a scene in a jail cell where Gambit and Rogue had an opportunity to kiss for the first time because there was no side effect to her powers. And it was right as I think Gambit was being taken off to be experimented on. So it was like this really big melodramatic, you know, probably just borderline slightly more in-depth than a soap opera level of drama that was happening. But for me as a kid, not understanding it and just knowing I love Gambit. This is an important thing for him. He's always wanted to do this. This is This is a big moment. Oh, no, now he's being taken away. He might never see her again. You're not realizing the stakes were a little lower than, you know, adolescent me was expecting them to be at.
0: That's like an Empire Strikes Back moment, Wally. Yeah. That's like the I love you, I know, like kind of level of uh, melodrama. That's dope. That rules.
2: Yeah. And really before that, but that was like the cementing. The X-Men were just sort of my favorite. I mean, I remember the first time that I was old enough to physically go to the comic store and buy my own comic with my own money was X-Men number 300 with uh, just beautiful uh, John Romita Jr. cover art with like a holofoil X pattern behind them. And it was a really great prelude story to Magneto returning, which was the big arc with new X-Men number one that was coming out just a little bit further after that. And really from there, that started my sort of deep dive into the comic books you know getting a bunch of uh, back issues I used to love going to old used bookstores because I would always find these great old issues of classic X-Men which were the reprints of the earlier stuff in the uh, sort of 60s and 70s but in the 80s so uh, they were all relatively worthless so they were just piles and piles of these things so I had tons of those which is really what gave me a window into sort of X-Men past and then being an avid reader at the time of like fatal attractions with Wolverine's claws being the whole adamantium skeleton being ripped out of his body and and into all, all those sort of major oh now there 's too many you know uh, events and stuff like that, like I think up through onslaught was where I probably finally fell off from being regular readership, but uh, nothing was as fever pitched though as the summer of uh, age of apocalypse, like I just remember when that happened like that my world was rocked, like everything I knew about the comics was shifting and At the time, you know, it's not like today where, you know, there's the internet and there's all these, you know, listings for what's coming out and everyone kind of can see when these big events are coming and there's no real surprise. Uh, there was, it was so much easier to be lost in the month over month or sometimes week over week comic book storytelling that really let that be a big shock and a big surprise. I knew something was happening. I knew there was a big event coming up, but I didn't know every issue. Of of every X related book was getting completely redone, and it was a four month run, I believe. And I remember by like issue three, I'm like, "Wait, are we going back? Like, is this is this actually going to happen?" And then obviously all the storylines started to come together, and and it was sort of told this really nice, complete sort of story. That to me, uh, some of my just most favorite memories of of really any media of the of that era i mean obviously all the big blockbuster movies and all the other big stuff that i love was was a big part of me growing up in the 90s but those books were were mine they were the thing that was about what i love not about being a part of a pop culture thing that everyone else loves and like i love independence day i love you know uh, the batman movies at the time but that was about me and the my friends in you know uh, on the playground at recess and when we're hanging out, you know, the X-Men, there weren't a ton of friends of mine who were as avid of a reader of it. So it was a really internal thing. And I think X-Men's a great IP for that because it is a opportunity to see a bunch of outsiders finding themselves within a family of other outsiders and so it makes it doesn't make it feel quite as lonely if you're the only one enjoying it and you're the only one reading it because it feels like you're just now one of them and by the time you know, we get to 2000 I've kind of put comic books to bed 6 15 16 years old and film is really where my sort of eyes on in terms of what my passions were what i wanted to do in life and i remember the the wizard magazine issue where they announced they were making an x-men movie and they had the like dream cast sort of of all the famous actors of the mid late 90s of who they'd be and i think they actually pegged patrick stewart in that issue you know well before any human being was cast in that movie and then once that first trailer hit it just sucked me right back into i'm seven years old sitting in front of the TV watching the X-Men again it's not bright colors it's not you know the same melodrama but the core the the heart and soul of what the X-Men were was present in, in even just the earliest marketing materials. just it really is family dynamics, uh, as painted against the backdrop of life or death, world ending stakes, and particularly the relationship with Xavier and Magneto. Growing up in the nineties, X-Men, you is always kind of a, a mirror to its time. But at that time, you know, there was a lot of AIDS and people grappling with queer identity and their own vision of their self. So I've always, kind of associated the allegory of X-Men with that, because that's the era in which I grew up in. But having Magneto leaning heavy into a a Holocaust survivor and having the uh, characterization so closely resemble the uh, classic Martin Luther King, Malcolm X uh, dichotomy and relationship in the movies, it really kind of made it an evergreen allegory. It wasn't until the movie I thought that this is truly now a Rorschach test. You, anyone can look at the X-Men movie and see some version of their own struggle. If they have a struggle that they're being conflicted against, that is them against the world. Um, and that's one of the things I thought that, uh, the movie just sort of really, really knocked out of the park. And I don't know if it's hyper intentional or if it was trying to be a specific thing and it just happened to be, um, you know, a, a broader, sort of stroke. Um, But that is, I think probably why it is of all of the Fox X-Men films, the one that's not, the most rewatchable, not even the best in terms of the physical quality of filmmaking, but it's the most endearing. And I think it's one of the most important pieces of cinema that you can trace back in the one-two punch of the original X-Men and the original Blade. There will be encyclopedias written about how important they were to the next 20, 30, 40 years of cinema. And not just mm-hmm. the, oh, that's what started comic books, and then the comic books became a thing, and oh, that's ruining cinema. No, it it was those movies that sort of said, no, these are stories that can be story-driven first, not character-driven first. And even the best comic book movies of the past, Superman, uh, Burton's Batman, those are character-driven films where it's the character is, is drawn and then everything is drawn around it and that's the central piece. Blade and X-Men, and to a degree Spider-Man as well, that definitely has more of a foot in character first. Those were movies that, won the general audience, not just because, oh, this is a character I know, but it won general audiences because of the drama, of the storytelling, talked to and spoke to people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Nick, do you remember like your early memories of X-Men or what you thought of X-Men as like a kid?
1: Oh, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> buddy, you have no idea. This movie <laughs> taught me how to get excited for movies. Very, very closely to Wally, my introduction to the X-Men was the 1992 Fox animated series mm-hmm. that we're going to get into. Mm-hmm. It actually plays an important part and this movie getting made. Mm-hmm. X-Men comics, comic books in general really intimidated me as a kid and X-Men personified that. Every time my mom could drop me off at a store cuz there wasn't one close by, it would be like issue 3 of 6 and I'd be like okay and then I'd pay 2.99 for like a third of a story. <laughs> You're yeah. like, "Well, I like the art." But <laughs> the animated series was so digestible and the characters were so immediately like, oh, that's Rogue, that's Beast, that's, that's Wolverine. And just for a kid, you just attach yourself so strongly. And I'll just never forget the summer of being excited for this movie, knowing it was coming out in July and seeing like the posters of just like the X. And as I was like 10 at the time, maybe nine. And I was like, I don't know how they're going to do this. I don't know how they did it. I, I can't believe in a few months I'm going to see Storm and Wolverine and Magneto be real. Mm-hmm. And so I bought my first issue of Entertainment Weekly and was reading about it. And that's how I learned like, what a director was. People were like worried about, like is this going to work? And we'll talk a lot about that, about the uh, environment that this movie had to kind of climb up the evolutionary ladder and exist. This was like the most hyped I'd ever been for a movie. I remember the action figures came out. And sitting there and watching the movie with my brother, watching it now this time, it is weird. It it is kind of like, you know, when you put the needle on like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan, Mm -hmm. it just like it starts and you're like, whoa, okay. (laughs) And this really did start. We're still talking about it. Now we're looking at like WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And like Wally said, it's crazy to go back to like X-Men and then even further Blade. Mm-hmm. Which we're just now starting to appreciate that movie, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, kind of. It kind of reminded me of Scream, Scott, with you last season, where this really was like a formative movie in my yeah. geek brain and really informed my tastes in ways that I'm. I was still watching this today. I'm like, oh wow.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely agree about the intimidation factor in X Men. Even the animated series intimidated me as a kid to a certain extent. I remember seeing that first episode with the mall and the death of Morph and all of that stuff. mall baby chili fries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember watching that first episode a million times because they aired it probably more than any other episode. I think Fox Kids aired that episode a lot. And then I would come in and out, because also X-Men was sort of late in the day, Saturday mornings, so I always watched Spider-Man, and then X-Men was like whether or not my mom had plans, whether or not I would actually get to watch X-Men. So I would come in and out a lot, and it was super intimidating from that perspective, because sometimes they would have like 12-part stories in the X-Men animated series, and if you miss a few, you're totally lost in terms of what's going on. So that was always X-Men to me. And then to help that along, I also had a nephew named Mark who was a little older than me and was super into X-Men and like image comics when that first launched and all of that and was telling me about all of this stuff. And he would like give me, you know, X-Men action figures and be like, look at this guy. This guy's this is his name and he does this and look at this guy. This is, you know, and, and the whole thing. Um, And it was just overloading my, like, you know, seven-year-old brain. With canon. (laughs) Yeah, with, with like, canon and characters and, like, wow, that's a lot of stuff. So that's all I knew of X-Men, really, up until this movie was announced. And at this point in my life, I was living in a town called Columbus, Indiana. They made a movie about it a few years ago called Columbus, there were two movie theaters when I was living there at the time. We didn't have a big multiplex yet. That opened later. We got like a Carasota's, um down the road. But that hadn't opened yet at this point. We had a, like a six-theater multiplex and then a two-theater multiplex that was the third story of a mall that also had like a playground inside and this whole thing. And X-Men at the time, this movie was such a question mark in terms of is this going to be a hit or not, the Commons Mall Theater, which was the two auditorium theater, was where studios would dump movies that the other, the bigger theater, didn't want. It got (laughs) X-Men. So the other theater, the theater that had like six auditoriums, they didn't get X-Men. They They Chicken Run. Yeah, they they weren't playing X-Men. They were playing other stuff. And I had to beg my mom to take me to the Commons Theater, because, you know, I was like 15, 14, 15 at this time, and she just dropped me off and was like, yeah, whatever. And I watched this movie by myself. I think the thing that struck me the most about this movie is like, you know, you look back at it now and there's a lot of moments that you're just like, oh, boy, that's silly. But at the time... I had never seen a comic book movie because I I love Blade, but Blade, especially at the time, I didn't really associate it as much with comics because it was like a vampire movie. It was like a vampire action movie. I didn't think of it as like a comic book movie, but this was a comic book movie. I knew the X-Men, and I was watching this, and I was like, wow, they are taking this very seriously. We're opening in the Holocaust? Wow, it was blowing my mind how seriously this movie was taking this material, and that was the thing that I remember walking away from being like, Well, that isn't anything like the comics I really remember, <laughs> but it was a movie, <laughs> like you know, and that was that was like my big thing that I, I remember very, walking away from it. I
1: think it's a very good way of putting it, Scott. Is at the time I was enough of a fan to recognize that's Shadow Cat, that's Rogue, but malleable enough to not care that. Anna Paquin's Rogue is very different from the 90s Rogue, from the animated series Rogue. Now that I've read a lot more comics and stuff, it is interesting how Brian Singer and Tom DeSanto and the Fox team at large were like, we're making a movie. Mm -hmm. We're not bringing the comic book to life. How do we take this crazy material and make it into, quote, a real movie? Yeah. And I think that mindset is fascinating looking back in 2021.
2: If you if you take X Men and you just trace out what is the evolution of the mentality that went into making that movie, and that traces not to the MCU, that traces to Nolan. You know, like the 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 film that finally perfected that mindset was not the Avengers; it was the Dark Knight. And so, you know, you could almost say that what Fox was doing was setting a path that uh, that Marvel like saw respected cherry-picked but then started its own version of with Iron Man uh, and and there's a whole other incredibly interesting conversation around the summer of 2008 in terms of Iron Man and the Dark Knight coming out and what that mean what it meant at the time and what it means in retrospect to to film um, but when you break it all down x-men is a feeder into that where it's maybe spider-man is probably more the feeder into the MCU where it's world building yeah. in respect of the universe not necessarily building the best uh cinematic presentation oh yeah
0: yeah all right so before we get into development i do have one big question sure that you know nick and i will probably only answer this one time but we're gonna ask our guests every time who's your favorite mutant
2: oh remy lebeau gotta Damn ask it. the question Done and done. It's Gambit. Okay, yeah. why? As a kid watching the show for the first time, obviously uh, Wolverine's very cool. And I always was drawn to Cyclops, too, because I just I think it's such an iconic look in Power Set. And the cartoon version of, of Cyclops was actually a really cool and interesting version of the like boy scout leader character um so he's a little whiny and a little bitchy by the time you get to like 92 in the comics but for me uh, i was born in new orleans but i was raised in in southern california so that immediately caught my attention because there was a connection there sort of uh historically with the character just like the accent the jacket the the trench coat the bow staff like it's like literally everything that a kid Can find in their house, playing cards, long jacket, (laughs) big stick, talk with an accent that was terrible for like a eight year old. But like I could be Gambit very easily. And I wasn't (laughs) going to be like, let me grab a bunch of butter knives and play around with my Wolverine claws. To this day, my Disney plus avatar is Gambit. And I'm shocked that they've given me that option.
0: Yeah, I'm shocked too. Honestly, that's awesome. I, I, have I, some more. I haven't
1: checked in a while. <laughs> you know, Gambit to me really personifies. It's a it's a it's a damn shame we haven't seen him yet fully realized on the big screen. Yeah, he to me represents the X Men are supposed to be sexy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they're supposed to be messy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in singular
0: and as a group. There's no messier bitch than Gambit. There's no
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's parts of this movie that nail that, and then parts of it that. You know, we'll talk about it. How it, it kind of, like you said, it isn't quite the experience you have of cracking open a Chris Claremont book. Yeah. And honestly, speaking of Chris Claremont. Well, what's oh, your, who's your favorite mutant? Oh, wow. Yeah. Already? Yeah. You know, I don't want to think about it too much. So I'm just going to say Kitty Pryde. Mm-hmm. If
0: somebody was like, gun to your head, what's Nick's favorite mutant? I would have been like, it's Kitty it's Pride. Kitty Pryde. Yeah. It's interesting because like. Mutants are tough because there's also a lot of different versions of different characters. But I think it's such a dense canon. Yeah. And like Wally said, I really like a lot of Wolverine stories, right? But like Wolverine is a character, never really grabbed me that much. You know, Cyclops, really iconic look. But I think at the end of the day, if you're like, who do you want to hang out with? If this character was in every single X-Men book you read, it would make you happy every single time. I think the answer is beast. Beast is my favorite. I just, I love him. I love him. I really do. He's great because, like Gambit, he's like kind of both sides where he has more
1: reason than most to be really angsty. Yeah. Because his, like, his appearance and he's still changing, but also he's at his best when he's like having a good time. Right. And like wearing a loud
0: shirt, leaving a bar. Yeah. Or like (laughs) reading Shakespeare upside down. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's my favorite stuff. I was always happy with any beast scene in the animated series. I just, any episode I watched that had beast made me happy. So, yeah, there, there's
1: some really cool stuff in all of these movies that we're going to talk about the Fox saga or canon or whatever. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I think if you are a fan of the books, it's mostly
0: like a long list of missed opportunities. Sure. I mean, there's no possible way for it to not be because of how expansive X-Men as an IP is. Right.
2: Yeah. I think the legacy of 2000, this first film, it left a massive wake in all of X-Men after that. And so much of what came as a direct result of the popularity of this film is not just iconic, but you know, definitive. Mm-hmm. I, I am not a fan of the new X-Men run. I think Morrison and Quietly were having a piss at the expense of the universe that I loved. But I can respect that that saved that franchise from its bloated, over-sense of self-worth into something that comic book fans could get behind again. So it's super respected.
1: There's a lot to talk about. And as crazy as it sounds, uh, if we go back to the late 80s, Marvel couldn't give these rights away. They were in dire straits in the late 70s, early eighties. The comics weren't selling as well. There's a really great Polygon article that I found going in depth about this era. We're not going to go into it too much, but there was a a VP of business affairs at Marvel named Alice Donifeld Verneau that in the article is just like driving from all like studios left and right and trying to cite things like Batman and Superman and like all of the things that we've been talking about is like look at the cinematic potential here. Mm. And they just didn't see it. And there were always reasons as to, like why it wasn't going to work because there were always things like The Shadow or Batman or Robin, Batman Forever. They were seen as like campy B movies. Some cool stuff happened. There was almost a version, like Chris Claremont tried writing a couple drafts of the script. There was one where like Kitty Pride was the lead and like the bad guy was her dad. At one point, uh, Chris Claremont talked in the Polygon article about how they approached James Cameron to make an X Men movie and uh, to produce, and he recommended Catherine Bigelow to direct it.
0: Oh, whoa. Oh, man. Hacker's era, Catherine Bigelow Mm -hmm. directing an X-Men movie. Wow. Near dark era. Yeah. That's incredible. And then
1: uh, what happened with that uh, fun story is he kind of got enamored. He became enamored with Spider-Man. Right. And focused on that. Right. And it stalled. Right. Uh, But then in the wake of the animated series, like massive success in 1992, Fox bought the film rights to the X-Men in 1994. More specifically, bought by producer Lauren Shuler Donner. And uh, she was a film producer at the time. She produced stuff like Volcano. Oh, you've got mail. Oh,
0: yeah. Um, But
1: uh, during her career, she married uh, filmmaker Richard Donner. And there's a quote by her, her words that, you know, being on set with him and watching him direct these big, crazy action movies was like, oh, I could do this. I can. I I know how to run these kind of sets now. So, yeah, the, the rights were bought. She hired Andrew Kevin Walker, the screenwriter of Seven, to write that first draft, that's. I bet that was an intense <laughs> X Men draft. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, Beast made an appearance. Oh, Angel Oliver Oliver Trask. Is that how you say Yeah, yeah, Bolivar Bolivar Tra- Trask. Trask. Yeah. And the Sentinels all made an appearance. Okay,
0: uh, in that first draft. That sounds like the OG
1: kind of yeah. right. Yeah, setup. Yeah, and uh, happening congruently uh, in 1994, a director named Brian Singer had just made his first movie, Public Access, which won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance that year.
0: In any of your research, did the Fox TV movie
2: Generation
0: X come up? N- not once. Did it come out in
1: 2000?
2: It came out in the 90s. It was like 98, 97, 98, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Not until you, I, I know, as soon as you said it, I remembered that show being on like WB at three in the afternoon. But Yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like a, it was a TV movie, the way that the, the Doctor Who TV movie happened. This was another okay. one of those like Fox TV movies. It was movies like a backdoor where, pilot. Where it's a yeah. backdoor pilot and no one watched it. And then they were like, Well, I guess we won't make any more of this. <laughs> um but yeah, that was that was probably another side effect of that of them being like, Well, we have the rights to this thing, so let's, let's make something, make something. Yeah. yeah the more things change the more yeah. things stay the
2: same from what I understand with the the generation X TV movie was it was they saw the success of the TV show which had Jubilee as essentially the audience buying character and then mm-hmm. generation X was the big hot new thing and this was sort of the tail end of the X Men's dominance like it was selling more than like almost everything else combined for a minute there in the early 90s I think X-Men number one uh, the Jim Lee one is still the highest selling single issue of all time right. so it was relatively fast-tracked, and I think that it went from pilot to TV movie pilot to one-off over the course of production. I think it's, it's just one of those things where they had desired momentum to do something, and they couldn't use any of the sort of main characters from the main X-Book because this is the era of, oh, you can't have two of a single version of a character. That's just impossible. Right. But then they looked, and like, oh, the Generation X thing, it's Jubilee, like the cartoon show, and like a bunch of other characters they'll never use in the main thing. So they were really enthusiastic about it, but it just never came together because the budgets required were just massive, and they had a fraction of it.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's one thing that I always forget about the animated series, is it really set in my child brain that Jubilee is a much more important character to the X-Men mythos than she actually is. And so for a long time, I was like, oh yeah, Jubilee, you know, like... The main character of the X Men. <laughs> yeah, a,
1: reoccurring, uh, a thing that I found as we go through like screenwriter after screenwriter and draft after draft, even going back to like Orion and Chris Claremont in the 80s, mm-hmm. there is this habit of picking these like kind of ingenue characters, whether it be Jubilee, Kitty Pride, or eventually Rogue, mm-hmm. as like the proxy audience character. Right. And it's really interesting. Yeah.
2: Well, that's a X Men trope. Kitty Pride was absolutely that character. Rogue in the 80s was built as that character because they were out in the outback and like Wolverine had to like protect her because she didn't have any powers in and she was like this reformed villain kind of thing and then I think Jubilee was more or less positioned that way but there wasn't a need for it in the comic books at the time when she was introduced in the like mm-hmm. the very late 80s or the like 90 and so she it never really felt like a big thing and then the cartoon is what sort of made that to me one of the things that's just as x-men as anything else is the idea mm-hmm. of the new girl who has to figure it out amongst this motley crew of of people welcome to
0: mutant high yeah. Yeah. Professor Xavier's his jerk. Oh <laughs> um. yeah. So,
1: uh, off the back of public access, winning the grand jury prize, Brian Singer was able to get a second film made. That film was The Usual Suspects. It won two Academy Awards one for Best Original Screenplay by Christopher McQuarrie, one for Best Actor Kevin Spacey, or maybe mm-hmm. Best Supporting Actor Kevin Spacey. I don't right. remember. Sure. While this was going on, they had the rights, Fox, to X Men, and they were approaching different directors, all kinds of people. Brett Ratner was asked. Uh, Robert Rodriguez turned it down. Uh, Paul W. S. Anderson was offered to direct it. He was like, "I don't want to be action guy. I want to do this horror movie called Event Horizon." Mm, respect, sure. Honestly, respect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Brian Singer was uh, first brought in to a meeting with Fox to be asked about Alien Resurrection, okay. and he was not an X Men fan. But his friend and producer Tom DeSanto loved the X Men. And was like, I can write the shit out of this. And it was Tom DeSanto who, having a working relationship with Brian Singer, was like, look, there's more to these books. They tackle homophobia, they tackle prejudice. Brian Singer, like a lot of people at the time, took it as like, oh, this is kid stuff. It's like pulp. There's no depth. I don't like the movies that have come out, you know, like steel (laughs) or like the shadow. Yeah. And so it was by finding the strong human themes. That Brian Singer, as as a gay man and, as, and growing up Jewish, was like, oh, this feels real to me. But that was also what got him into the material. He wasn't Sam Raimi growing up reading the Spider-Man books, having like a childhood
0: love of it. Mm-hmm. He had to find something, and I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. It, it explains a lot. I feel like Christopher Nolan is the same kind of guy. Where it's like, he wasn't growing up reading Batman comics, but he was presented Batman and was like, well, let me see how I would approach it as a serious filmmaker, you know? I think that that's where the line is being drawn, for sure, Mm -hmm. between those two guys.
1: A deal was finalized in July of 1996. Bryan Singer was signed on, but he would go first to direct his movie, Apt Pupil. And Ed Solomon, who listeners remember, wrote Men in Black 1, was brought on to adapt a treatment that Singer, quote, and uh, Tom DeSanto wrote together. So they wrote a treatment. Ed Solomon was going to work on a script while App Pupil was being made. Oh, my God. So, Is that
0: script anywhere? Can I read that script? Oh, my God. Oh, man.
1: Yeah. So uh, in February of 1997, App Pupil was being filmed. So, okay, Uh, I'm going to go ahead and restart this. We kind of made the decision here at Franchiseography to... The point of the show is we want to Chronicle like the stories of these movies being made,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the environment in which they were made, and what that kind of says about where Hollywood and the film industry was at, mm-hmm. and what we can learn from it. Mm-hmm. And Brian Singer's legacy, separate from this movie, separate from directing these really popular movies, has a legacy of abuse, mm-hmm. of, uh, of of alleged rape, right and criminal activity. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Uh, so I, yeah. uh, you can hear that I'm audibly like out of my field, but I did do a fair amount of research, and I guess I'm sharing this to provide context to the listener. Right. So in April 15th, a civil lawsuit was filed uh, to boys uh, age 14 and 17. April 15th of what year? April 15th of 1997. Okay. Got so it. filming began in February. This lawsuit was filed in April. Okay. And these two boys allege that uh, members of the crew of that pupil forced them to uh, strip naked in a a locker room scene. And so what I found interesting is I kept researching. And there is an Entertainment Weekly article dated May of 2000. I found it on entertainmentweekly.com. I can only assume that they didn't have web-exclusive content in 2000. Mm -hmm. So this probably ran in the print edition. Yeah, most likely. And in the print edition of this Entertainment Weekly story I read, uh, it goes into much further detail about the circumstances, how these two boys were isolated from the rest of the production team, and goes so far as to name two crew members as to being the ones who bullied these young men, threatened them that if they didn't strip naked, they would lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. And one of the people named in that article is producer Tom DeSanto. Mm -hmm. And I bring this up, listener, to say that... So this happened in 1997. X-Men was greenlit in 1998. So... I guess I just I don't believe that anyone, like from Schuler Donner to Tom Rothman, weren't aware of this. Right. And so I guess I'm just I want to paint a picture of the listener of like what information was available when. Because there are instances later on of people coming forward about Brian Singer's conduct towards them, like years after the fact, mm-hmm. decades after the fact. Mm-hmm. But what I just shared with you was information that was publicly available in nineteen ninety-eight. Yeah. And I I think the reason behind that, the more I learned going into it, is in just the span of three movies, you know, Public Access, Usual Suspects, and now going into App Pupil, Bathory X-Men, Brian Singer had cultivated the reputation of being, like, one of the hot new voices of cinema. Mm -hmm. Young listeners might (laughs) not appreciate this because he's fallen off lately, Yeah, (laughs) but he was in the same breath as filmmakers like Darren Aronofsky Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and Christopher Nolan. Mm -hmm. And this industry has a history of looking the other way or sometimes even rewarding mm-hmm. unprofessional activity, to put it fucking really lightly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because like, well, they're talented. Right. Or they're the golden goose. Right. And right now, even by 1998, Brian Singer was a golden goose. Right. He just made usual suspects. Right. I don't believe people when they say, because like, I found this on the internet. hmm and so again, I don't know. In a world where people are like getting Variety and Hollywood Reporter delivered on their desks every day, I just struggled to believe that this wasn't the yeah. producers of the movie. Yeah, this is
0: this. this is an Entertainment Weekly article. Not to say anything about the sort of just gossip train of Hollywood and crew talking to each other and producers talking to each other. The sort of whisper network, right? You know, this was an Entertainment Weekly. It's kind of crazy. I will say that it's an interesting thing because it's just gonna like, it's going to get worse. Like it's going to get worse in this episode. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, oh, no, well, yeah. You know what I mean. But so, yeah. so the film was
1: greenlit in 1998 off a budget of 75 million. Some interesting stuff: Beast, Nightcrawler. And The Danger Room all had to be cut from the script by Ed Solomon to get the budget down to $75 million. Mm. So that's some stuff that was like originally in the treatment in the script. Christopher McQuarrie, writer of The Usual Suspects, was brought in to do a rewrite. Uh, it was supposed to take three weeks. So the film was greenlit in North American summer of 98, so like June, July, maybe August. Mm-hmm. By October, McQuarrie still had not turned in a draft. And uh, he attributed it to what were called story meetings. So in these story meetings, you could have anyone from Christopher McQuarrie, Brian Singer, Tom DeSanto, some combination of producer David Winter, Tom Rothman, and also random young guys that Singer would bring in unannounced that had nothing to do with the movie. And he would just have them come in and just sit and... Singer had already, even before production, had kind of cultivated a reputation for having temper tantrums or just having trouble communicating ideas. And it kind of led to uh, a really unpleasant writing room situation, escalated by the fact that one of the men that Singer had coming into these meetings was a guy named David Hader. Mm -hmm. At the time, David Hader was Brian Singer's personal assistant. He was answering phones in the production offices. He was making $500 a week. Unbeknownst to the producers of the movie, David Hader was also writing the script, (laughs) Brian Singer took David Hader aside. David Hader is quoted in this Hollywood Reporter article that was written in 2020 that I'm going to be quoting a lot from. Brian Singer told David Hader, "quote Just sit there, take notes. Don't say anything. Don't tell anyone you're writing the script." So that would happen eventually. Ralph Winter, I accidentally called him David Winter a few minutes ago. Eventually, found this out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Took David Hader aside and goes, "Okay, show me how much of this script is yours." Because it was also still being written by Macquarie and Ed Solomon, mm-hmm. they were all in this room together, and David Hader goes through the script and like points out to Ralph Winter and attributes like roughly fifty-five percent of the script to him. Ralph Winter calls Peter Rice, the director, and says, "Hey, you know David, the guy that answers the phones, he's been writing the script. We have to figure out how to give this guy credit, or we're fucked legally." Yeah. So. Winter calls in David Hader and says, look, we're giving you $35,000. This is the best offer you're ever going to get. Take it. Never bring this up again. And that's why David Hader is the only credited writer on X-Men. Wow. McQuarrie was very unhappy with this so much though that he convinced Ed Solomon to, he he was, I want, I don't want credit for this movie. And he was able to convince Ed Solomon to do the same. The WGA arbitrated it and went through the whole process and their names were removed from the movie. Mm. David Hader Says in the, in the Hollywood Report article that Macquarie, Jess Macquarie, lost $1 million in royalties in the first year for giving up the credit. Ed Solomon is quoted in the article saying that he kind of views it as like a young man's mistake. Mm-hmm. It was brash. We were pissed off. But he was like, yeah, it would probably,
0: business wise, it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Man. Uh. <laughs> and David Hater, he stuck around. Like he went on to like write Watchmen, the yeah. adaptation of Watchmen. The voice of Solid Snake. Is he really? Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Okay. <laughs> Hollywood, baby. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. But so like watching
1: the movie this time, it was weird. I can quote parts of this movie to myself. Mm-hmm. So many lines in this movie are great. And I'm like, wow, how much of this is MacQuarie? How much of this is David Hayter or
0: it's Solomon? Right. Yeah. Um, we'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know. They seal all those arbitrations, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah.
1: And that kind of leads us to production. As an overview, Brian Singer was prone to like erratic behavior, temper tantrums, just like little stories of that happening throughout the movie. One note though that I want before we go into like a breakdown of the movie. So with the story stuff, Lauren Shuler Donner could see a storm was coming. Like this could potentially be a problematic production. I need someone that I can trust to be there on set and make sure that the ship is running.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, she had a personal assistant. Uh, named Kevin Feige, who uh, had worked with her on You've Got Mail and Volcano. And so Lauren Shilodon was like, hey, Kevin, I really enjoy working with you. Do, you. do you like this comic book shit? Are you a fan? And Kevin Feige was like, yeah, it's cool. Um, <laughs> I need you to just be there to make sure that the ship is running. We're going to fly yeah. you in. You're going to be on set. And there's like this cool article on Screen Rant that I found where he was the person in the room being like, we could just open up a comic book. You know his philosophy with these movies is like any kind of problem or story question that you have nine times out of ten there's like stuff worthwhile in the text that you could find mm-hmm. I bought the x men one point five d v d mm-hmm. to watch like bonus features and stuff, and there's like really fascinating production diaries, and there's one where it's a bunch of production people in a meeting in like a circle like sitting around desks, and they're like hi, I'm the editor hi, i'm bob I'm the like c i a consultant or the secret service consultant and then Kevin Feige's like uh." Kevin Feige, because <laughs> like <laughs> he doesn't know what to say, because <laughs> he's he was just uh, Donner's assistant, yeah. and uh, through his contributions on this movie, he earned the credit of associate producer, and this is actually his
0: first credited movie uh, on IMDb. Wow, you sent that picture, and it's just baby face, twenty six year old Kevin Feige, not even wearing a cap. Yeah, he's not even wearing a hat yet. Wow. It's nuts to see, to be honest. It's it's nuts
2: to see. It's funny cuz you had mentioned, you know, telling your listeners to contextualize yourself 20 years ago where Brian Singer sat in the Pantheon of of the time. And as a, a senior in high school, so this would have been 2004. We had a page your, your senior page you can put whatever you want on it most people would write these really eloquent sort of statements about their time and i wanted to use it to look forward so what i did is i just took a bunch of pictures of filmmakers and and just put like the film underneath it that meant the most to me of each one and it is cringeworthy to this day because like the Woody Allens, the Brian Singers. There's, there's a few people in there, like uh, Sam Mendes on the back of American Beauty because I was standing hard for Kevin Spacey. There, there was no short of problematic people involved with that. And the reality is, a lot of what I talked about at the beginning in terms of how the core and the heart of what the X-Men are is apparent in this movie, that glue, the middle pieces of all of that is, and this is an assumption, but one I will go throw every dollar I have on, <laughs> Comes from Feige because you see it yeah. to this day. And it's something that yeah. didn't exist before he was involved in any movies. And everything that you laid out about Brian Singer, and now in retrospect, everyone knows about the making of not just this movie, but movies in that era, is mm. there was no one going into that thinking about how do we give a crap about the core and heart of these characters? They were just like, how do we put a movie out there that doesn't embarrass us and makes the studio a lot of money so then I can go do, you know, my Let's Kill Hitler movie, Which My passion project, do. Yeah, yeah yeah, and so this movie is such a nexus point, and not just for storytelling, but also a lot of what you're talking about with singer it doesn 't happen because people have a list and there 's pros and cons of the of the filmmakers, and on the cons list it's probably has an appropriate relationship with little boys that 's not like on a master sheet that someone prepares for these producers to do. what happens is it's right. is, is, is an interconnected, complex network of looking the other way and when you right. always have to uh, establish and judge the uh, the value for the risk, and yeah brian singer is a, is an up and coming name, but he 's also like the tenth person they go after, and if he shows interest, that gets the movie made and that 's tr- truly where the sin comes from at the executive level is not respecting the risk for the value of the reward, but this is also a huge example of when the end started to come for that being normal operating procedure in hollywood and we're still in the process of doing it but we are no longer in a world where it's normal for executives to risk reward manage everything and and therefore all association with wrongdoing goes into a risk calculation as opposed to a moral calculation now which i think we're starting to see people made so sneakily this might be one of hollywood's most important films ever yeah. Yeah, well, like we'll see,
1: you know, Tom DeSanto is also the producer of every Transformers movie that has been made and is being made. Mm. Uh, I can name the other person in the article, but he has nothing to do with the X-Men movie. But I can tell you he has credits this decade. Oh, uh, so, you know, I, I think progress has been slow. But I think something really interesting, like you said, about Brian Singer is watching the X-Men 1.5 DVDs and like the interviews and like reading interviews with the cast Brian Singer had a lot to do with why a lot of these actors signed on because he was like oh this isn't going to be Batman and Robin this isn't going to be Steel he's taking it seriously he's going to make it a real movie mm-hmm. and the a uh, level of like apology Anna Paquin and Ian McKellen being like, I like, I know, I know it's a comic book, but like, it can still be a real movie. These can be real characters, yeah. and just not the not to put too fine a point, but like, how far we've come in how serious pop culture
0: takes these characters and these stories. Yeah, it's night and day, and and it started here. Yeah, and it all started with the 20th Century Fox logo fading to an X. Yes. And I remember the first time that happened, that was when I was (laughs) like, oh, here we go. Strap in. We're watching an X-Men movie. This is nuts. I love it. And I think at a certain point they stopped doing it, if I remember correctly. And it always bummed me out that they stopped because I just thought it was a fun, nice little wink to being like, you know, X. Yeah. X. We we know why you're here. So I just, I love that moment.
2: I really do. Almost being
1: like a little
0: bit proud that they made this movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. It lingers just long enough to almost suggest 20th century Fox, but what's important. Is the X Men? It's not just that, but it's how it goes from the opening into the first scene and the title sequence. Like all of it is just—it's a buildup and it's a momentum thing. And right. it's, all of it is elevating the source material. It popped, not like Avengers level, but like that was one of the first times I've heard an audience go nuts over something innocuous, like not not like a, or, or a call out or like a cameo or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like people they literally link. lost their shit the when, the first yeah. time I saw that.
0: Absolutely in my theater too. Like that X lingered and everyone. It was like, woo! it was it was an exciting moment. Yeah. Real quick. This
1: movie was supposed to come out in Christmas of 2000. But then Mm. Steven Spielberg decided to make artificial intelligence instead of Minority Report first. So Minority Report leaves the summer 2000 slot. Fox is like, oh, shit, we need something to come out in the summer. X-Men gets pushed back six months. Pulled up. Pulled up six months. And Shula Donner said in an interview on the DVD, they were not able to test this movie. Uh, Whoa. Until it opened. They didn't know until audiences were sitting down to watch it. And then watching people like flip the fuck out during moments of this movie was like the most gratifying
0: experience for oh, my God. the filmmakers. Yeah, that's that's awesome. <laughs> so we start off with the VO, Professor X, yeah. Patrick Stewart Cheers. as Professor X talking about evolution leaping forward, and then we transition into this crazy like a spinal cord and this whole thing kind of showing what it looks like when the genes mutate when your mutant powers uh, awaken yes. and uh <clears throat> I,
1: I can't think of a better time to bring this up now mm-hmm. the score for this movie oh yeah is done by a man named michael Kamen. Mm-hmm. i had kind of a mandela effect yes. watching this movie because i equate john ottman's score with the whole series yeah so much so that i just assumed that this one starts with like, dun, 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 dun yeah. dun. yeah. And so I did some research about Michael Kamen. And listeners, I had never heard of this guy before, but Michael Kamen <laughs> is one of the most impressive human beings I've ever learned about. Wow. I, I could go an hour on Michael Kamen. He was like a, a rock classical musician. He, he collaborated with Pink Floyd on the wall. Uh, he wrote ballets. He did scores for movies like Highlander, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Lethal wow. Weapon, The First Three Diehards. So, Brian Stinger approached John Williams to do the score,
0: but he was busy doing a movie called Saving Private Ryan. Can you imagine what the John Williams X-Men theme would have been?
1: Well, it's funny you say that. So, they hire Michael Kamen. (laughs) Oh. And Michael Kamen's like, I don't know who the X-Men are. And then, Brian Stinger sells this vision of, like, it's a real movie. It's going to be about homophobia and racism and intolerance. And he was like, oh, fuck yeah. (laughs) And, And so, I found this crazy story. On like filmscore.net, this website. Oh. And this guy is like, I was hosting a screening of uh, Brazil because Michael Kamen also scored Brazil. Oh. And like, he's like, Hey, Mike, Mr. Kamen, can I drive you back to the airport? And he goes, Yeah, sure, sure, man. So they're in the car. And Michael Kamen's like, Hey, I'm about to go back to Hollywood to play uh, my score for the X Men movie for Fox for the filmmakers. Do, do you want to hear it? And the guy was like, Fuck yeah. <laughs> so he puts it in. And the guy, the guy writing this article is like, It was Michael Kamen's Superman score. It Whoa. was big and sweeping and orchestral and iconic and he was like, this is the best thing you've ever done and Michael Kamen's like, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Flies back to Hollywood, they're playing the score for like Shuler-Donner and Singer and they really don't like it. Ugh. They go out into the hallway and they have an argument and they're like, this isn't the movie. We, this movie's modern. And I, you know what? I can kind of see where they were going because like this isn't, Superman, yeah, this isn't big and sweeping and romantic, yeah, so basically he had to redo the whole score,
0: but I would <laughs> and no kid- one's ever
1: heard what is his best score, so like I'm like,
0: oh God, but, but also- I, I would be so curious to hear it, yes, because watching this movie to <laughs> in preparation for this, yeah, one of the things that I was so struck by, and I feel like I'm struck by it every time I rewatch this first movie, is this movie is quiet, yeah, like even in the action scenes, the action scenes are quiet. It needed more score, I think, to like really heighten and sell you on some of the more heightened stuff that the movie does. It's a weird combination
1: of short and slow. Yeah. Where it's under two hours, and yet I'm like, yeah, I was like, wow, this is very dry. Joss Whedon was one of the many screenwriters brought in to do a draft or a rewrite. and uh, Only she, one
0: line remains.
1: Yes, yeah. And <laughs> Shuler Donner is quoted as saying that they, she loved that draft. It was awesome. It was funny and exciting and poppy and jokey. And Brian Singer was like, "That is not my movie. Yeah, I want this movie to open with the Holocaust." <laughs> and <laughs> like, you know, and I like, mean, it
0: wasn't the wrong choice, well, I yeah, guess. No. Like, <laughs> but like hearing it in that context, <laughs> no, i just sure. like, Jesus. Yeah.
1: Like uh, <laughs> James Marsden had this interesting moment in the interview. He was like, "I appreciated that the movie took it that seriously." You know, like dealing with homophobia and prejudice and yes. stuff. But what's interesting now is we're in an age where I look at Falcon Winter Soldier. And, like, we're not afraid to kind of try and do both. Right. Where you can take these characters and have them go through things that are very serious, but
0: also not shy away from the comic book stuff. Well, and that just that sort of leans to, you know, my whole Issue with the concept of the young genius filmmaker and the the young wonderkind, mm-hmm. you know, a film by Brian Singer when there's thousands of people on this crew, <laughs> um, you know, that idea is bullshit because all, all we've learned since is that he's actually not a very good filmmaker. He just kind of got lucky with these that his take fit what the world wanted at the time and it fit the IP that he was given. But in general, like he's not a great filmmaker. He doesn't have a really great vision. And as soon as he colors outside the lines at all, the movies go to crap instantly. He's got a real shallow focus in terms of what he can do as a filmmaker. And I think what you're talking about is proof of that. And maybe back then, he was you know, smart enough or aware of himself mm-hmm. enough to be like, I'm not capable of doing that. So I just want to stay with a movie about the Holocaust right. and and about these themes because I know how to do that. I don't know how to shift from that to jokey jokes and back again. Because even the jokes in this movie are super awkward. A lot of them. Most of them. We'll yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, do a break. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think a lot of what you're talking about makes sense. But I actually need to go back and talk about Michael Kamen a little bit more. The X-Men franchise as a whole, I think pound for pound, the most eclectic and diversely listenable soundtracks across the board. And I think that a lot of that goes back to the foundation that came in set. There is not a human being alive that has done more to shape me, who I am today, than John Williams. But I don't think a John Williams score, especially in 2000, would work for the X-Men. It's like he's staunchly in that like whimsical mode at that point in time in his career. Like even AI, which should have had a really dark kind of sound and even a sound that he's capable of doing out of the Schindler's List to Saving Private Ryan window of the mid 90s. It was a very dark time in terms of his music. He sharply turned in the other direction. With the prequel trilogies Harry Potter and and all the other work that he did around the time, so I think that having a simpler smaller approach, and one of the things I think the movie did really well and I don't know if we're going to give this to Cayman or if we give this to the editor, the way that the music has a soft touch throughout it and doesn't have a true sort of crescendo moment until literally the very end, not just the client post climax the biggest musical moment of the movie is after they've beaten magneto like it ends on such this moment of like, was that a happy ending? Like It was, but like, I don't know. And the music captures that beautifully. And part of my preparation for this podcast was I went back and I listened to my favorite track from literally every X-Men movie to try to get a sense of like how I would rank this against the rest of them. Cause I don't get to talk about the rest of them other than the musical perfection of first class and the iconic yeah. Ottman main theme, which recurs in the future, I think this is one of the best pieces of music written for all of X-Men, including the Wolverine and Deadpool sub-franchises is that Logan and Rogue track on that soundtrack. And it's just so perfectly encapsulates the feeling of, of, for me, just watching that movie. And then the last little thing, because you failed to mention one of my favorite factoids about Michael Kamen and the score for X-Men. If you look at the CD release, Michael Kamen is listed as Michael K-M-E-N. Not K-A-M-E-N. Like X-Men, but K-Men. 15-year-old me would have just married the man between that and <laughs> he also did all the orchestral stuff for metallica's snm album i think in like 2001 oh, there God. was a moment where i was very punk rock about my film music love and i'm like michael Kamen's the best <laughs> composer ever and it was entirely between x-men one and uh, metallica's M. yeah that's that's awesome
0: scott uh, first scene of the movie i want to bring up the x door because this is how we transition in almost every X-Men movie as we land on this X-Door. I enjoy it as like a motif now, because I look back and it's like, oh yeah, that's the Fox X-Men movies. They always did the thing with the door. It's charming, but I look at it and I don't really know what the purpose of it is, other than they needed some way to wrap this up and transition somehow from this crazy CGI spinal cord intro into the Holocaust.
2: (laughs) I mean, I always looked at, the opening of the X Men movies is essentially the cinematic version of a comic book cover or a title page.
0: Oh, yeah. And
2: Fox did a very similar kind of structure for the Fantastic Four movies. You know, I think Daredevil had something kind of similar in terms of an opening title sequence for like a four or five year stretch where that kind of became the structure of comic book movies. And what I liked about it so much is the continuity of it. Like there are these beats that are just about setting the tonality of an X-Men movie. Like when you hear the very distinct, almost safe closing sound of the door shutting and then the kind of the crackle of the spin of as it's going around, that puts you in a mindset that once you kind of go through now the middle of the X, you're now in this universe of of X-Men. And I, I think that that's a very clever continual thing that they did that at the time, I thought was integral to the tone setting necessary for a comic movie. I think now, obviously, you don't need something like that. But Mm. I'm a big fan of inter-franchise continuity. The X-Men franchise was a treasure trove of interfilm continuity up until, I want to say, First Class took some liberties with it. But then Singer came back and brought a lot of it back for Days of Future right. Past and Apocalypse. I'm actually half surprised they don't right. end them in the same way.
0: Oh, true. Yeah.
2: Like, I would have done that I, as a filmmaker. I am that basic enough. <laughs> We're like, oh, well, we start with this. <laughs> then we have to do the reverse for the end credits. Duh.
0: Like opening the storybook <laughs> at the beginning of a Disney movie and, and closing yeah. it at the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's not over yeah. until you do that. Well, our storybook starts in uh, Poland, 1944. In a Holocaust concentration camp where we meet a very young Eric and his mutant powers manifesting in a stressful moment where he is separated from his parents and tries to bring a gate down to get back to them. What do we think about this scene in terms of like starting off? Like, I mean, this is the least expected, I think, way to start an X-Men movie.
1: I think it's incredibly emotional. And I think it's Mm -hmm. telling that it it, Brian Singer chooses to introduce Magneto to us first. I feel like everyone always says, oh, the villain is the hero of their own story or whatever, but this is one of the rare times that it it really feels like it holds weight, Mm -hmm. where I think Ian McKellen brings such dignity and gravitas to Magneto, and I think letting the audience meet this character first. It's beautiful imagery of his powers activating at a time of incredible trauma and panic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember being really affected by it as a kid.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I'll be completely honest. Um, I think this is the most X-Men way you can start a movie, because if you think about it, what are the core tenets of the franchise that you're telling with your sort of starting out point? Like if you have Superman, it's the Krypton blowing up Batman. It's his parents being killed. These right. things set the sort of tonal mood for it all. And within the X-Men universe, the tonal mood is prejudice, the power of one group. You know, wanting to control another and where it can go. So why the mutants can't let it get there again? Because, you know, in our very recent present history, we've already done this. So by starting it there, I think it's a really apt place to sort of start an X-Men story because you're showcasing the kind of brutality that the X-Men are worried about, that the the mutants are worried about in this universe isn't hypothetical aliens or, or anything else like that. It is everyone. And I think about like what would it be today because you probably can't do the Holocaust today in the same way because... There really isn't going to be a survivor of the Holocaust who's going to be your main villain or antagonist in a 2020s film. So you you think of something like the Tulsa Race Riots or uh, even something Mm. like Why We Have Pride Day. Stonewall. 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 Thank Thank you. you. That's where an X-Men story that wants to get to the core of the universe and give you something emotional and raw to connect with on that level. I think. The holocaust this is very real and present in our society right now and i think it sets that tone beautifully
0: yeah absolutely and it's a scene we'll eventually come back to in first class it's now an iconic moment in magneto's origin we move to mississippi where we meet rogue kissing a boy and sucking the life out of him accidentally as her powers manifest The thing that I find interesting about this scene, Anna Paquin, I think, plays it really well. However, I feel like the logic jump is interesting in terms of how does she know that she... Is responsible for what happened to him. Well, is she already
1: aware of her powers? Her word choice is so fascinating in that moment where she's like, "I didn't do it. I just touched him." Right. There's this part right before it cuts to Washington where, like, I don't even know if she has like ADR, but her lips are saying like, "What's wrong with me?" Or "What am I?" Yeah. And it's it's really cool. It's so alarming. Yeah. And uh, I remember whispering to my brother, like, that's Rogue.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think we all miss, like, Rogue from the comics, right? And the little bit more melodrama version of, yeah. oh, I can't touch the people yeah. I love, versus this is, like, a much more grounded, yeah. tragic approach well, like, to it. like, the difference between, like, a 29-, 30-year-old Rogue right. and, like, a 15-, 16-year-old Rogue. Right, right, right. But I think that she does a really good job, and I could see why they chose Rogue for this you know, and I, and I think they did this a lot in this movie. The mutants that we focus on are the ones who are kind of constantly in pain f- with their powers, right? You have emotional pain with Rogue and you have physical pain with Wolverine. And it's just like, this sucks. Like, it sucks to be like this. And when we look at the Brotherhood, as we introduce them later, they're going through pain that we don't see, really. But we hear about it. We hear about it in terms of like, we look like this. There's no hiding this. Yeah. Because the
1: movie started with one of the most hateful acts in human history. Right. We don't need to be reminded of like, oh, yeah, people fucking suck. Right. And like, are afraid of people that are different. So, like, when we see Mystique, it's self evident. Right. Bit of a fun fact Drew Barrymore, Sarah Michelle Geller, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Katie Holmes, Christina Ricci, Alicia Silverstone were all approached for the part
0: of Rogue. Wow. Natalie Portman turned it down. Wow. Not for Star Wars. For just, Star Wars? Just because. Oh, just because. Okay. <laughs> okay.
1: Maybe that... maybe because of Phantom Menace. She was like, I never want to see a fucking green screen. Again. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like,
0: All right. I mean, that was fair. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. And she did not get her wish. Okay.
2: And I will say this so about that scene. It is a beautiful representation of a young person confronting violently a reality and truth about themselves it's, it's one of those like metaphors that's just never that literal you can trace that to the first time a, a trans kid discovers and thinks that you know they would be better in a different body mm-hmm. they're vocalizing and physicalizing a lot of internal struggle there um, and then just to cover any continuity question this is a world where mutants exist so I think if you live in that world and it's something strange like that happens, it does. Like, it's, a, it's a straight logic leap to be like, what did I do? Oh, my God. Why am I this? What has happened to yeah, me? Yeah, that's a good point.
0: We move on to the Senate hearing where we're introduced to both Jean Grey yeah. a- as well as Senator Kelly. So
1: uh, originally there was going to be animation at the Senate hearing to kind of help the audience understand like what mutation was in this movie oh. and they hired it was the same animation people who designed mr dna in jurassic park that's who i would have hired <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. like, <laughs> uh, like first call i would have made for and sure. then like
1: that idea was shelved and then split between uh, patrick stewart's vo in the opening ah. and gene gray's delivering of information at the senate hearing I that makes sense selma blair lucy lawless and maria bello were all offered the part of gene gray helen hunt turned it down huh
0: helen hunt Right. <laughs> yeah, the choice to make everyone so much older than they typically are in the comics is an interesting one. The idea of having that generation divide, you know, with the kids and then the X-Men are like adults is an interesting th- choice. Yeah, and they kind of break it down in the montage of what the school
1: is and how it works, but yeah, you're right. Like Jean Grey being very different than like Marvel Girl.
0: Right, you know. Um but still being at the level of Marvel Girl. Which is the really weird thing, powers wise? She's Mm -hmm. at the level of Marvel Girl, where she's like still freaked out to do any like psychic stuff. She's like, I'll move stuff with my mind all day long. Not as strong as the Professor. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So like, it 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 is an interesting choice of marrying those two things—the sort of naivete with her powers of Marvel Girl to the Jean Grey adult helping running the school, one of the teachers, Jean Grey being like like an emissary and a diplomat. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting combo. But yeah, then we get Senator Kelly, who is one of the two villains of this movie. You know, I think Senator Kelly is often forgotten as a villain of this movie, but he absolutely is. You know, he is a standard kind of like x-men archetypal villain which is a politician with uh Anti- with a thorn mutant. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah and, absolutely yeah
1: and then unfortunately this plays even stronger now in 2021
0: oh my god watching this all i could think about was mitch mcconnell it's all i could think sure about. or like you know every day i wake up and there's more
1: bills introduced in state legislator yeah. that are do no civic good and do little else but like endanger yep. and isolate and yeah, just 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 dehumanize
0: LGBTQ Americans, especially children. Yeah, and, like it's crazy. It's yeah. it's it's crazy that this is the not too distant future, and it could still be talking about the not too distant future from where we are. Mm-hmm. You know,
2: whether it was purpose or accident or or, or circumstance and kismet, this film is evergreen in the way that it doesn't list a Kelly year. Green. yeah, <laughs> and what's so. I think poignant about that is that uh, these are not the the machinations of of lunatic comic book villain. This is not you know, Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor. This is literally you know in two thousand you could have you know said three other different senators that this seems exactly like, and you know twenty years from now it's going to be three other ones. And I, I think what's You know, most poignant, especially in retrospect as years go by, is to understand and recognize that this is a cycle that doesn't stop, that this is an incredibly Mm -hmm. human story just using you know day glow and neon colors to tell i mean i, I think of you know them going off about the h- crazy hypotheticals about mutants and what can they do and how dangerous they are to your kids and i think about the bathroom bans for trans people four or five years ago when it was literally right. the exact same language like oh you're know, we're, you're gonna have people you know invading the the little girls room where your daughter's in there like it's, it's literally the exact same mental gymnastics to get to that quote as it is you know what's to stop this girl from chicago to go through your walls and enter your house and steal Mm -hmm. your things and it's so i think apt the way that it was written and presented that while the visuals are like oh this isn't what government looks like in a circular room like a draconian senate chamber but the words and the text and the the tonality of it is all just upsettingly accurate
0: yeah. And I have more to say about in terms of like how those villains interact with each other. Not just literally but thematically, as we go later on in the yeah. movie. But but absolutely they're both they're both villains in different ways. And
1: overseeing this hearing, you know, kind of almost like God and the devil yeah. looking down, Resab Magneto and Professor X.
0: Yeah, yeah. With that little sort of cross crowd recognition, and then they like go and meet in this side. Hallway. This, this hallway, and yeah. Interesting
1: about that. Uh, that day, that confrontation between Magneto and Professor X, mm-hmm. that was Patrick Stewart's first day on the set. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how he was very uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. It was a new crew. He didn't really know Brian Singer that well. He was in this chair.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he was, like, in retrospect, he couldn't understand yet the historical factor of these two characters' meeting and talking right and so what he did as an actor was he brought his relationship with ian mckellen to the scene
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh they both came up in the rsc together and were contemporaries and colleagues and had that history Mm -hmm. so he's using that in that scene
0: oh so good
1: and yeah i mean it's
0: It's like one of the most iconic scenes in any x-men movie i think is this scene in this hallway between these two yeah uh, it's so clean
1: and it's kind of like the whole saga in just a page or two, yeah, and I think you know it's it's why Singer I think was apt to go after these two Shakespearean actors to bring
0: gravitas and weight to these characters, and I think you buy it. Yeah, I mean, you know, Patrick Stewart as Xavier is like a no brainer kind of casting. I think that Ian McKellen as Magneto works like gangbusters, but I remember when it when they cast him, I was like, number one, the who, and then they would be like, oh, the Nazi and app pupil. Okay. He's like kind of old, right? It never clicked with me, but their chemistry is so immediate. In fact, their chemistry and the chemistry of Hugh Jackman and Anna Paquin, in this movie, are what drives yeah, the whole the movie heart forward. Of the movie for sure. Yeah, without those two chemical reactions in this movie, <laughs> the movie doesn't work at all. Yeah, because like a lot of the other people don't have a lot of chemistry. I think they find chemistry as the movies continue, but it's, it's not as easy going as the other two.
1: It's immediately telling the viewer that this isn't Batman and Robin. Yes, that these are real humans that are like, and you you feel like the weight of Patrick Stewart. Every time Eric leaves the room of like a kind of this little ping of failure. Yes. <laughs> I like I still haven't, I still
2: yeah. haven't gotten through it. It's so good. If you really break down, wh- how does the X-Men movie begin? A mm-hmm. lecture about evolution, a a weird like tone setting intro scene, the Holocaust, a violent puberty slash understanding your body as a young person scene, a deeply dark and scary government. We're about to come take everyone's rights. And then this interaction between the most intelligent people you'll ever even see on screen in terms of how they're interacting with each other and having this weighty, deep Conversation about hope and direction, and doesn't need to come ideology. To war. Yeah, like it's just uh, this is you know, a lot of what people talk about with Snyder's stuff, where he gets like real heady and tries to overthink.
1: Must there be a Superman? Yeah, yeah all that sort right. stuff.
2: This to me is is like the actual. Version of that, and it works because it's X Men and because it's of its time and of its moment. That like you would not have these like seven beats in a row that are beating you over your head. Like this isn't Superman, this isn't Batman and Robin. This is your life. This is your pain. This is what you have to deal with. Ah, feel that. This is Gotham
1: City. Yeah. this is the not too distant future. It's like right. poking you in right. the
2: shoulder. like this isn't a comic book movie. This isn't a comic book movie. This isn't a comic book movie. Absolutely. And and we we go
0: to a truck stop and we see that. Our girl Rogue has run away from home. Yes. Uh, wow. The guy driving the truck
1: that drops Rogue off at that bar is the voice of 90s uh, Beast.
0: Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. That's fun. Was that a purposeful cameo? It was or... a sad
1: coincidence. No. Okay. <laughs> it was a
0: cameo. Okay. Okay. It was a
1: purposeful cameo. It was Beast yeah. in the
0: 90s. Yeah, cool. He drops her off and she goes inside and finds herself a cage match because in the not so distant future, uh, truck stops have cage matches, I guess, occasionally. They sure. do in Canada. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is where we get the introduction of Logan, yeah. a.k.a. Wolverine. You know, the word iconic, Ugh. you know, it gets
1: thrown around a lot. And yeah, I just vividly remember that, like, that's Wolverine. Again, yeah. I, I wasn't, I was too naive to be like, he's too tall. Or yeah, anything. right. I, I didn't know any of that until afterwards, right. but I was like, oh my God, that's Wolverine.
0: Yeah. That's the thing though, right, about Wolverine. It's like, yeah, there there is that aspect of him where he's like short and he's, you know, hairy and he's smelly and he likes beer and, you know, he's gross. And like, that's Wolverine in the comics. But the popularity of Wolverine and the, the fandom of Wolverine, I think put the character on this pedestal that goes beyond the original design of the character. And now we have Hugh Jackman who is... Playing that Wolverine, the icon of Wolverine, and I think he plays it perfectly. Yeah, he is technically way too tall to be playing the Wolverine from the comics, yeah. but he's Wolverine. He's the Wolverine in our hearts, you know. Like he's the Wolverine that that we we have in our mind. The, yeah, and so so much so of this good.
1: scene is like etched into my memory. Like the sound of the other guy's knuckle colliding with Logan's knuckle, and you can Hell hear yeah. the metal. Yeah, and that the God- head butt. The a sideways headbutt. headbutt. Oh. God bless him, the MC yeah. that gets like, and you know, you're you're, and still the champion, the Wolverine. And yeah, he picks up his stogie, the cigar that he can't smoke anymore in the MCU, which I'm, I'm bummed about. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's great, and it's a real testament to Hugh Jackman, which you know I'm sure you have the story, but like <laughs> the fact that he was cast, like what was it, like a week before he started shooting or something like that, and he just nails this character so hard that he plays it for 20 years is insane completely insane
1: yeah. yeah, Jackman had his kind of breakout role. He had done like indie movies in Australia. He describes as like, you made your own sandwich during lunch, you know? Sure. You, you were your own stand-in. Uh, he was in a West End production of Oklahoma. He was dominated for like the, the British equivalent. I don't know if it was an Olivier Award, but like, you know, yep. the British equivalent of a Tony, the West End equivalent of a Tony mm-hmm. yep. for Curly. Glenn Danzing was like early talks. Uh, Russell Crowe was approached by Brian Singer and he turned it down, but he was like, you know who it needs to come up
0: is my mate Hugh Jackman ah uh, fellow australian hugh jackman see russell crowe is like the platonic ideal especially late now. 90s 2000 well now too okay, but now he's right. like now he's like way old but like i feel like at that time he would have been sort of the platonic ideal wolverine you know everyone likes to throw around um danny devito bob hoskins bob hoskins right people throw yeah i've heard danny devito as well but yeah like bob hoskins danny devito and yeah that's fun and funny to think about but like Russell Crowe is kind of like, that's what Wolverine is in the comics, but Russell Crowe, we would have been lucky to get like one Russell Crowe as Wolverine movie, let alone 20 years of it. It's why Hugh Jackman is so, so great in this role. And I think it's like, I had no relationship with Hugh Jackman right, or to
1: an eight-year-old. It wasn't in any other movie, so like, yeah. it was just, you were immediately able to, I don't know, and we get that cool scene where he sits down with Rogue, and they have this unspoken bond yeah. already of just two people like identifying each other and then yeah rogue saves
0: logan's life the first time his claws pop though yeah is they still they look great it's so good but it is interesting because technically they're not supposed to work like that because you know he wouldn't be able to move his wrist and it's a whole thing they're supposed to come out of like the top of his hand and be a kind of an angle you know so that it goes into the middle of his arm not like the top of his arm, if that makes any sense. Um, I'm doing a visual on the video that we're recording this on, but it works and it looks painful and it's so cinematic and the, the claws just, Oh man, they just, they rule. They look so good.
2: So, I mean, two things. One, the claws actually, and I think you actually do see an actually I don't know if it's in this one or one of the future films, but the claws actually when they were attracted are, are fully down below the wrist. So that's uh-huh. the explanation for how he would be able to have full range of motion on the wrist. And then they come all the way out to the knuckles when they're extended. So that's why then he can have the full range of motion when they're out. Theoretically, he shouldn't have them. If like, if he's doing like this, like, he, and I, I get visual things, he can't have like a limp wristed, and then the claws come out, because then they would theoretically come out at the top of his thing. Right. But the way that it's done, and they are fully down to the forearms. You were talking about just sort of like he's, not, he, he's smoother and shinier than any Wolverine you've ever seen, and he's about five inches taller. Right. I cannot take any of that seriously when people make that complaint, because the reality is every one of those features that are vintage and classic and true Wolverine were all invented when the character was literally supposed to be a Wolverine. Like, right. he was created to be a Wolverine that's kind of now mannish, and that's what he is. Like, his secret thing was going to be, no, I'm actually a, an animal, not a human. A- and that obviously went away very well. An animal quick. that
1: Hugh Jackman believed to be uh, fanciful.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that story. I love that story. Yeah. Yeah. That Hugh Jackman thought it was a, not a real animal. Wait, <laughs> <Are you laughs> telling me those bloody things are real? Yeah. <laughs> that's so great. Thought it was like a jackalope. Like Just like a totally fake animal.
2: <laughs> Planting one more flag along the trip so we can look back and see how many flags I planted. Why X-Men 2000 <laughs> might be the most important, not best, but important film ever. We would, <laughs> not, we would not have Hugh Jackman today if it wasn't for this. Like, there's no yeah. way he would have got any uh, starring role er- that early in his career that would have, would have made him the icon he is today. Uh, he, he would have been huge on Broadway. But, you know, it, it, that would have been a Like, he'd be in the upcoming Dear Evan Hansen movie and everyone would be like, who's that guy? Oh, he's that guy from Broadway. Like, instead, he's yeah, one of sure. the most important movie stars in an era where there are no movie stars. It's, in, it's true. Yeah.
1: Claws are interesting. There was no cast made of Hugh Jackman's hand. There's a, a guy named Gordon Smith. He was the costume designer, a prop designer. Production wanted all kinds of stuff. They wanted the claws to be under him at all times, like under a prosthetic. He cut that idea. They wanted real metal blades for the claws. And he was like, no. So it's a combination. They were like sleeves that you could put on and like over your knuckles. Yeah. And they were made of rubber, depending on like, because sometimes they split. Sometimes sure. it was CG. But a lot of the times there's practical effects of like whatever, like different materials they need. Because the claws actually do quite a bit of different things in the movie. Yeah. Like they're inside stuff. They get split.
0: Right. Yeah. So we get the bar fight. It's great. Iconic. Love it. I just love Wolverine with the stogie. You're absolutely right, Nick. It's like iconic, and it's gonna it's gonna be a bummer that he'll never be able to do that kind of move when he eventually yeah. makes his way to the MCU. He'll
1: relight a cigar out of like smoldering Sentinel char. <laughs> yeah,
0: totally. But yeah, after the bar fight, he bails. Rogue follows him, and uh, sneaky Rogue, just like a Rogue in D and D. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, she's got like plus five stealth automatically, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, She's yeah. like
0: level one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sneaks in the back of
1: his house, his home.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then Wolverine is carrying with him. Yeah. Tries to drive away. Then his better self sort of takes over and he stops and lets her in. And we get a great scene where he uh, gives her beef jerky. I think about this scene <laughs> in X-Men probably more than any other scene and maybe any other X-Men movie. I don't know what it is about this scene, where they're in the cab of his truck and she's eating beef jerky and asking him, you know, does it hurt when the blades come out? And he says, every time. There's just something I, about that scene that I, I just absolutely
1: adore. I don't know. There's something I really appreciated watching this movie for the first time. Logan makes his first real connection of maybe since like 15 years since he got his memories erased or whatever. Mm-hmm. He makes his first human connection by exposing himself by yeah. revealing the part of himself that he keeps hidden away his claws. Yeah. And Rogue sees that and it's that that Rogue is able to clock and be like I think I can trust this person. Yeah. And when he finds her and her hiding out in the trailer she's like I thought you would help me. And there's this unspoken like I know why and like the allegory of it of like these two people finding each other these two outsiders. And yeah, I think about this scene a lot too. I think the thing I most appreciate about Hugh Jackman in this character and I think maybe it could come from him not being familiar with the comics or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's his his vulnerability. Yeah, is I think what care what it adheres the audience to this character. I mean, he's like he's really charming and he's funny and he's got like kind of the Han Solo jokes for sure, uh, yeah. like the Everyman. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's the way that roe He's able to open up with this girl after knowing her for just a few minutes. And like you said,
0: like does it hurt every time?
1: You know, like as a kid, I'm like, oh my god, they're taking it as seriously as it it feels.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah, and it's something that you don't really think about when you're reading the comics, right? Um yeah. That like it has to come out of his hands every time he does that, and I just I love you know the thing about his vulnerability, right? And it's it's not just that he's vulnerable; it's that he knows where to place his vulnerability when he allows that to be revealed. When he turns about on the heater for Rogue. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's oh man, it's so subtle and great, yeah. and just like a phenomenal performance just right out the gate. And also Anna Paquin,
1: like yeah. so. I mean, this is like the first time I think I saw her in a movie and she's so fucking good in this. Yeah. It's interesting. You're talking about how every like Jean Grey are kind of aged up and and she is like a kid and just in the way she like, does that mean you're in the army? Like the dog tags, it feels like such an honest, uncomfortable conversation between like a a kid and an adult.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then he gets launched out of the car. Then he gets launched out of the car and slides across the ice and it's 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 immensely satisfying. I don't know, (laughs) and that's the other thing too. Is like when he gets up, right, and we reveal that That he has the healing factor. Yeah, Yeah. what I love about that whole thing, and I think what adheres us so much to Wolverine too, beyond just the vulnerability, is that his mutant power is that he gets his ass kicked, yes, and then heals. Right? It's like I can go, I can put myself through anything and be okay. But it's gonna hurt. But it's gonna hurt. That's powerful, you know, in in terms of like an emotional connection to the audience. Yeah. I mean, it it
1: makes him, I think, really
0: even more
1: more impressive today in a world where Spider-Man can hit by a train and it's a joke. Right. Uh, Watching this movie, I, I, I could have made this note at any point of the movie, but I think Hugh Jackman is one of the best actors I've ever seen at communicating pain. Yes. He is able to sell so many specific kinds of like, I'm being stabbed. My skeleton is getting ripped out of my body. <laughs> right. I'm, you know, like shot and all all over this movie. I'm like, God, I can, and you remember it. You remember like the effort. I think that is also what adheres you to Wolverine is yeah. that he, he, he can do it. It's yeah. just going to
0: hurt. It's going to suck. Yeah. No, it's, it's so, it's so good. And then the brotherhood shows up. Well, Sabretooth, right? Sabretooth. Right. And yeah. Played by Tyler Maine. Right. Explain this one Wally.
2: <laughs> so you see at this point in time in Wolverine's <laughs> chronology uh, he has no memories. So he wouldn't have any uh, recollection of this person this character. But what we have seen about Sabretooth's life up to this point in time is there is a lot of parallel path that they run. They're in sort of, you know, different armies together, different special force units together, and he's a bit of a of a mercenary and while we've seen in the past that he is always down to irk and mess with, Logan, throughout the years, he also takes his mercenary job incredibly seriously, and you don't actually get a moment that it's truly one-on-one where there aren't other people around. And so the headcanon here is very much, he was paid a great deal of money, or he has a very specific need for this job, and he just lets his professionalism not you know, get in the way. And the intent is he'll get a little James uh, later, post-film. Again, if you look at it in the macro, if you think... Think about it in that perspective. It's actually not out of character and it's a huge stretch, I recognize.
0: I guess he would be indifferent to a Wolverine that doesn't remember him, also. So he, yeah. that makes sense.
1: I, yeah. I barely look at these movies as being connected to each other.
0: <laughs> that's probably the easiest way to do it. Yeah. Like oh, the whole yeah. time I'm watching
1: X, like I don't <laughs> think about oh, that's James McAvoy,
0: Yeah, yeah. Or oh that's Liv Shriver. Yeah. There
1: is a part early on though, Professor X says, like, things have changed since then, Eric. Like it's different now. And I can kind of imagine that being retconned into talking about First Class. But mm. this time I was like, oh, God, are they, is he talking about what happened to Eric? Right. Is he talking about the Holocaust?
2: You know? yeah." Also, I'll be completely yeah. honest. If you really critically look back at First Class and the first X-Men movie, the whole Raven being foster yeah. sister to Charles right. makes way more sense than you think it does. There's actually not oh. a whole lot of directly contradictory elements of that especially the way they set up that magneto is seduced her. because most of the time you see them together as, as adults in the x-men movies their relationship is one of leader and subservient you know follower which in any cult related situation you know you don't just have the same free-flowing emotions that you would have in the past and there's also not a lot of connectivity with actual mystique and xavier so it's not like you have to wave that hand away and lastly. Mystique knows her way around the X-Mansion way too well. Like, it actually makes more sense that she's been there before than she's just espionaging her way in there to sneak into do Cerebro. Because, like, that's that takes a level of knowledge true. and connectivity that you kind of right. expect someone that helped build the damn thing would know. And that's, yeah. like, it actually connects accidentally, but way better than you think it does based on the silliness of taking yeah. a main villain or a sub-villain and making them a main hero in the prequel franchise
0: yeah that does make sense uh tyler main
1: the contacts that he's wearing is Sabretooth, once left him blind for an entire day
0: whoa movie contacts man dangerous stuff honestly yeah all the horror stories you hear from the evil dead set with the white contacts that they had to wear oh um uh, storm and cyclops arrive yeah storm-, storm and cyclops yeah yeah storm and cyclops so we get our our first appearance of storm and cyclops here and you know Sabretooth we think is tracking Wolverine one because if you're a fan of the comics you are predisposed to believe that because you know obviously I there's love a relationship Wolverine. yeah obviously there's a relationship there but also they're setting up that red herring for later in the movie but what's really happened is obviously they've read in the news about what Rogue did to that boy that sent him in the coma the wheels are turning in Magneto's head, and he sends Sabretooth to go track uh-huh. her. And so that's why he's here. But the, of course, the X-Men are here because of Cerebro. It's really cool that we know all of that, but it all comes from just context. No one ever actually specifically says any of those things, but it all makes sense. And I kind of love that.
1: Right. Yeah, there is a swiftness to the way this movie delivers world building that never feels I mean sometimes it feels like exposition but I don't know compared to like now that we have like 8 of these coming out every year right I feel like sometimes even the MCU is like okay now Doctor Strange is going to tell us what the rocks do just like sit back <laughs> sure and yeah I think because this isn't a comic book movie this is a movie it's kind of playing by a different rule book than we see Kevin Feige steering the MCU when he's like trying to recreate reading a comic book. Sure. For in a movie right, right setting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So they take out Sabretooth and Bale and then we uh, we go back, we meet Magneto's Brotherhood and we're in a lair, something that Magneto does not have very often in these movies. I this might be the only time he has a lair. I mean, he
2: has a compound in Apocalypse.
0: Oh, right. That's true. That's more of like a cult thing there's right? a small
2: family, like, wooded home. Like you can, it could be a wooded family layer. Yeah. yeah. Um. I guess also. Wait, no, apocalypse. I don't.
0: <laughs> Can't wait to rewatch apocalypse. <laughs> this is
2: a straight up supervillain
0: layer. However, and we're also introduced to Toad, who yeah fits the Brotherhood aesthetic of Magneto being the only one who could walk through this Earth with no one ever knowing that he's a mutant. Um, you know, you've got Mystique, you've got Toad and Sabretooth, all mutants who can't pass for normal humans. Yeah, they don't like easily. James Marsden. Right. However, that being said, I, I'm curious as to why Toad in terms of like all of those mutants that are out there, like why go with this particular mutant? Well, I've always interesting. found interesting. It's
1: interesting how like through the process of this movie of characters like Beast and Nightcrawler being cut, I think... And so oftentimes, like in pre-production, watching like the behind-the-scenes stuff, they seem to be looking for ways to make this movie feel like it exists in the real world. Right. And that affected everything. It affected everything from the costumes. It affected what powers were going to be highlighted, mm-hmm. what characters. And I think through all the movies, we look at – you take characters that are super fun and cool, like Multiple Man or – dazzler and they're desaturated mm-hmm. and like well how can we make this quote real and quote like the production team are like we want the viewers to believe that these people could exist in the real world mm-hmm. for better or worse mm-hmm. and i think if you look at a character like toad who is like jv if you're like an x-men comic book fan yeah his skill set kind of fits this post blade post matrix he has very physical powers he can mm-hmm. jump he can leap he has like a long sticky tongue but he's a dude Yeah. He's a very stunt-centric
0: character. That's definitely true. And you get Ray Park.
2: Yeah. I I think with Toad, though, contextually thinking at the time... He was one of the few characters that was in like almost every iteration of the Brotherhood in the 80s and 90s. Oh. And like you even have things like the Pride of the X-Men animated pilot they did. Toad is there. Right, yeah. Literally to be the Toady. like the, not to be like a full Brotherhood member, but to be like the star scream to Magneto's, uh, <laughs> you know, Megatron. Right. If you really break it down to like when X-Men was the most popular, 80s, Four to 92 or whatever that window is toad is an incredibly common character that like most of those fans would know exactly who they are so right. i always including
1: x-men obsessive piece of shit tom DeSanto. yeah right <laughs> those kind of deep baseball moves are like make more sense now knowing that he was yeah. on the team yeah
2: he was like a big big yeah. big x-men fan right right yeah. non-x-men yeah. fan is never putting toad in the movie that's absolutely true. Right?
0: Was Ray Park cast because of Darth Maul, or had they even seen had Darth Maul even been a thing at this point? Well, I'll be honest, Scott. I don't know that specifically, but okay. I do
1: know that to help prepare for this movie, Brian Singer visited the sets of productions like Titanic and Star Wars: The Phantom Menace oh. uh, because he had never directed a big movie like this. But like you said, he was also like hot young thing, wonder kind Brian Singer. Right. And so he had access to these sets to kind of learn how to run a effective big budget movie set and then just to do the complete opposite yeah. right yeah he
2: he was that. already darth maul they didn't know the reception of the movie yet by the time he was cast and stuff yeah. it was just more like he was there but they also did know that he was just kind of the body he was always going to be the the mayhew
1: peter sarafenowitz is darth maul yeah, yeah. As god, all, no, no, no. god bless yeah. him
0: <laughs> the tick himself <laughs> yeah so then after the, we uh, meet the brotherhood we get this sequence in the school where we're introduced To Xavier's school for gifted youngsters through Wolverine uh, waking up, attacking Jean Grey, and getting lured into Xavier's classroom with Um, psychic messages. Just a little like fun
1: tidbit. So Beast was cut from the script. Right. A lot of Beast's medical
0: doctor stuff was then given to Jean Grey Mm. in the rewrites. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. She doesn't belong here. But, you know, but it works well enough in a cinematic adaptation. It's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. My
2: least favorite line of dialogue comes from this section. As mm-hmm. Xavier is introducing all of the X-Men to Wolverine. And it's like, oh, this is uh, Scott. You know, he goes by Cyclops. He at one point says about Sorb uh, and also called Storm. And just for some reason, I'm just sitting there. I'm like, humans... Don't talk like that. Just say also known as or she goes by. That's not human language. This was this is bad. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of it's,
1: I remember as a kid clocking it as like, oh, they need to do this. Yeah. Yeah. In a movie that is so committed to being grounded and realistic to have but like, hi, this is Scott, aka Cyclops. Yeah. This is Aurora, aka Storm. Uh-huh. It, it feels like a video game cut scene. Right. Uh-huh. Totally. Totally. I've always really really liked the scene where Professor X is teaching uh physics to all of the students. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, like the actress playing Shadow Cat. Her name is Samala Kay. She was also in History of Violence. She's from Ontario. Most of these young actors were day players from Canada, oh. uh, with one exception that we'll get into when he comes up. But there was a moment where you know, she's like, "By Professor," and runs through the wall. Uh, I whispered to my brother, "Like that's Shadow Cat," and he was like, "Shut up." <laughs> <laughs> and that was the moment where i'm like okay he's got it he knows you, he knows that i like the x-men you,
2: you got to have a running gag in this series of every time a new actress plays shadow cat you gotta you gotta talk about this version of the character like in depth and yeah. in detail
1: let's just say i know a little girl who can walk through walls or a girl who can walk through walls <laughs> yeah i didn't know this and i don't know if he should be proud of this but uh, uh the wheels line is improvised by hugh jackman
0: oh that's fun all right. What do you call you? Wheels? Yeah. Not, you know, a great joke uh, <laughs> in modern times, but, you know, he's doing it his was, best. It
2: was a breath of fresh air next to also called Storm. Sure. Yeah. Also called.
0: Uh, also, shout out to Jubilee played yeah. by
2: uh, Katrina Flores.
0: Yeah. It was something I wanted to bring up was just that Jubilee was there. And I remember when I saw her, I mean, it was just like, oh, the hoop earrings, the yellow jacket. That's Jubilee. Holy shit. It's Jubilee. What what's she gonna do in this movie? And the answer is walk out of a classroom. <laughs> and right. I remember being really bummed about that because I really love Jubilee, you know, having, you know, grown up watching that animated series. Yeah. And we never really got a good Jubilee, I think, really across any of the movies. I think we got a little bit more Jubilee in Apocalypse, if I remember right. That's the one, right? Yeah. But like not a lot. And there should have been more Jubilee's good. Sh- we should I mean, we'll we'll talk about how Whitewashed, these movies are. Yes, absolutely. In
1: terms of like being very selective of which mutants get lines and
0: yeah. are in the movie. Yeah, it's kind of a yeah. bummer. I mean, not kind of a bummer. It's a big bummer. After this introduction to Wolverine and uh, and the X Men. Xavier starts walking Wolverine around campus and showing the school, and we we learn about the school. And we get all of these like shots of like yeah. students. And... Uh, uh,
1: the the multiple kid that's playing basketball those are actual triplets.
0: Oh, that's fun. That's a that's an easy way to do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do that uh,
1: effect. We've we've been living like Wally said, in like super serious. This could be you know this isn't a comic book movie, and then we get a bunch of really fun, audience pleasing. Moments of watching these kids use their powers, like, hey, no powers, when they're playing basketball. And I think it's really kind of like introduces the viewers into this, what they paid for, I guess, is, you know, the fun superhero stuff. Right.
0: Yeah. You know, in general, once you get through X2, there's very little Xavier School stuff. And I wish there was a lot
2: more. I mean, because, it's my
0: favorite part of uh, the. the, the whole I just universe. love seeing these mutant kids running around with
2: textbooks. It's so great. Mutant kids and students and like learning about yourself both as a living entity on the planet earth, but also as mutant kind is one of my favorite parts about X-Men. I love the new mutant slash X-Force. I love generation X. I love all of these sort of things. And the movies have desperately needed to spend time on that. And I think that that's something that I, I honestly, that's where I think the MCU takes it. I think they're going to focus way more on the school aspect of it than the grand, you know, world ending stakes kind of thing. Almost like what spider Man's doing. But for me, I, kind Kinda love. Quicksilver scene in Apocalypse where he saves all of the students doing like student things and you kind of get these tiny little momentary vignettes of like student life like one kid using his powers to prank another but the building's exploding so Quicksilver comes and saves him which is the most X-Men sentence ever and the fact that that's in a movie just like makes me so happy like it is vastly underrated as you're going through this experience when you get to that point in time I'm really curious your take because I think that that's a concentrated dose of the student life and really apocalypse i think does the most concerted effort to showcase that because they do have the generational groups in that movie for the first time one of the reasons why that movie is such a failure is it it whiffs that dichotomy really badly but there's a quickly kind
1: of grows bored with that and becomes like any other x-men it cut
0: it cut most of it out of the movie too i'm going to see return of the jedi and whatnot yeah but yeah i like that and i like the scene at the end of days of future past where wolverine wakes up And the school is back and everyone's alive and walking around. That's a really, really great scene. Yeah, all the school stuff. I
1: mean, yeah, we'll go into X Men too, because I think that is some of the best school stuff. Yeah, for Uh, sure. It's one that feels most, I mean, you know, like Sean, oh, uh, shout out to Sean Ashmore, Bobby, uh, also from Canada. At the time, his biggest role was he played the leader on the Animorph series. Oh, I wonder if Zach's listening to this. Uh,
0: Yeah.
2: And also a twin. And if I right. and, oh, nice. yeah. and if I remember correctly, I think there's that scene where Mystique plays him, and I think they brought his brother in to help, like with body doubling out on that. If I, oh wow, trying to reach back in my memory banks of factoids, but I think that that happened. Yeah. And
1: also introduced in that scene is uh, you mentioned Pyro. There's a scene where him and Pyro and and Bobby are kind of combo pranking and turning like a fireball into an ice ball. Right. Pyro is played by Alex Burton, who at the time of filming was 18, but he was from Los Angeles, and Singer met him in los angeles and at the time m- multiple members of production were confused as to why they were flying a kid out from la to toronto when like sean ashmore was from canada katie pride was from canada jubilee was from canada right but this guy was from la no one knows how how he was cast he was like would talk to different members of the crew and was like oh i'm like brian offered me the role personally brian flew me out he's like oh you're perfect for this role And this was behavior that became, it was a pattern of he would find these small roles, these day-playing roles, and offer them to young, handsome guys with not a lot of power and not a lot of credits. At the premiere of X-Men on Ellis Island, Alex Burton ended up finding a civil lawsuit saying that he was drugged and assaulted by men that were not affiliated with the X-Men movie in any way, but were part of that circle of people in brian singer's life that we've
0: already talked about
1: yeah multiple times in this
0: episode was it one of those parties that he used to throw all the time
1: it was some kind of like thing at a at like a hotel at okay. a premiere and yeah. so again like it you know it uh, wasn't members of the crew or the x-men but it is a result of right. singer's influence and him right. and his entourage then giving you know these were like dot-com people right and so yeah it, it was like these little things these little bits of uh, oh that's weird but we're not going to look into it. Yeah, uh, that's kind of sketchy. Yeah, but it's Hollywood, baby. What are you going to do? Right. Ugh. And then it became like this thing where he was a character in X Men Two. Right. And they had to create this whole song and dance of like, well, you know, we need to find another actor, and it's like, of course you fucking did.
0: Yeah, like, that happens a lot. Not just that. That the, everything that you no, but the, about. the 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 kind of adage of like, I can get you a part, I can get you a role. Yeah, yeah, all of that happens a lot in the series. But also the fact that they're not minor roles, like. They are in this movie, but they're major roles in X-Men. Whereas like you have so many mutants. You could put any mutant in that you know for a fact is never gonna be a main character in an X-Men movie. But like instead you're using characters like Pyro and Iceman and Jubilee and Kitty Pride and Colossus in the next movie. You know, and it's just like it's a waste at such a absurd level. But, you know, I think that all goes down to one. Brian Singer wants to use mutants that feel like real roles for these things that he's doing, and also he doesn't give a shit about the X Men. And right. he's not Kevin Feige, right. That knows the like, oh
1: well, if you do that, if you if you plant pyro, the viewers are blah blah blah. blah right, 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 things. exactly.
0: So so it's just it's a lot of combinations of things, but uh, yeah, toxic set for sure um, uh, from this director, absolutely. We also get this line in this sequence where Xavier says, "When I was 17, I met a young man named Eric." I love that because you didn't have to name a date like an age. You didn't have to. Yeah. Uh because, but like like you said, like they didn't fucking care. They right. didn't know
1: they were going to make a prequel to this in 10
0: years. Yeah, you know? totally, totally. But it's just it's just so funny. That like <laughs> like you could have just been vague. Like it wouldn't have changed the line at all. Like you could have just been like, "When I was a young man, I met this guy named eric he was so yeah handsome. and we were we were friends and then we weren't friends and it was a whole thing i mean uh, moira you know, is in, that an
2: angel in first class though he is 17 though like so it works who xavier xavier james mcavoy's yeah. 17 in that movie no like he's, he's, like, he's like, oh. that's part of the messed up stuff about that franchise is the way they do the time differences of the what? 60s Why is he in college because he's Xavier. He's like,
0: Oh.
2: That he's like the overclocking his brain. Like, cause Raven's not supposed to be much, like, they're supposed to be a similar age. I'm
1: rejecting that too. What yeah. they
2: never do in first class, though, is acknowledge those ages. So Matthew uh, Vaughn is smart enough to do exactly what you just said, Sky. It's like, oh, we don't have to say anything specific. Let's just make a movie. Right. But, the, yeah. but it all does technically track if you think about the, the ages and stuff.
0: So Xavier talks Logan into staying, hanging out for a little while. And then we cut to Senator Kelly saying goodbye to his fans, because as all senators have, uh, it's just like a group of fans like a boy band. Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> Matt Gaetz. It's actually, God, it's actually so
2: the most prescient of all of the points in this movie yeah is the cult of personality around uh outrageous rights destroying senators i've always been a big fan of the adr lady
0: at the very end like we love you senator yeah i know i know (laughs) i heard that this time too (laughs) yeah don't stand politicians everyone just don't do it uh they work for you yes but yeah we get this scene where mystique kidnaps the senator by posing as a uh I don't know, like an assistant guy.
2: Uh, Henry
1: Gyrich, who is apparently uh, from the comics. Oh, oh, okay. Another very
2: important character. It's another in the long list of like, let's just have a throwaway. And it's like a name. At the time, my thought process, because of the context of filmmaking, you're going to make a movie. You're not going to make 30 movies like you're realistically yeah. you're not thinking about franchises in that long. you're thinking of franchises like one, two, maybe three. So if you're going to have an extra make it a name character, so it makes the world feel more full from the thing that you're doing. But the mm-hmm. reality is yeah. as you keep making these movies, then that becomes the worst thing. Cause then you have to either recast. like I, I think 10, 15 characters have been recast throughout the franchise. Bolver Trask has been two different people. Uh, actually, Gyrich I think also was recast. I think they named a, uh, uh, another character guy Ritch, in one of the later films that's what's happening in these films is like oh i have an extra like i'm gonna we'll put it's a nice. name on it because in the context of this movie and maybe the plans of a sequel if, if that's nascent yet in his head they're not going to come up but in a uh, modern sensibility there's nothing you can't do with these storytellings so why waste yeah. a character with potential by uh, being an extra so it's 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 that's- almost different now than it was back then yeah, yeah, that's really yeah.
1: interesting. Yeah, it's like the difference between now, it's like, oh, this was a fun thing for the fans. If you're a fan of the comics, you'll hear the name Henry Gyrich and be like, oh, okay. But now you have to pay that off because you have the ability to. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a wink anymore. It's a promise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're like, now all of a sudden, a character not even named in <laughs> WandaVision can be like Ben Grimm or Mr. Fantastic right. or Dr. Mephisto. Strange. right, right. Mephisto, of course, yeah.
0: Uh, Absolutely.
1: So, Rebecca Romaine Stamos. Yes. Lots to talk about. Uh, Originally offered to Jerry Ryan. Oh, Seven of Nine. Seven of Nine. Interesting. Okay. You know, there's this quote from Rebecca Romaine Stamos in like the -the behind-the-scenes stuff where she says, only a model could have survived playing this character. Uh Uh-huh. This is about as nightmarish of a process as I can imagine for any kind of performer. There were 110 individual prosthetics that were worn by Romaine. The eyes were glued And then the rest was like this self-sticking thing that they would put on and then like detail it. It was uh, colored with food coloring with additional makeup and paint. So originally, everyone, including Rebecca Romaine, agreed that they were going to use cosmetic grade food coloring. But then at the last minute, after discussions and after meetings and people in circles talking and making plans, Singer insisted that opaque paint be used instead, which added six hours to romaine's prep time jesus uh for a total of nine hours so she would wake up anywhere between one to three a.m in the morning to undergo this process no facilities were provided to romaine to exhaust paint fumes she describes the process of getting like spray painted as like excruciating. Oh. Uh, this because of the filming stuff that I mentioned earlier of stuff getting like pushed around. They were filming during one of Canada's coldest winters. She had very little, if any, contact with the rest of the cast. She said it felt like she was making her own movie a lot of the times, and it felt like hell.
0: Oh, that sucks.
1: There were times where she would go through the process and come out, and Bryan Singer on a whim would decide, "We're not shooting you. We're not shooting the scene. We're doing this scene
0: instead." And she'd be like. Okay, fuck me. Oh, God. That just... It sucks so bad. And as bad as Mystique looks in the later X-Men movies... I got to say, good on Jennifer Lawrence for just putting her foot down yeah. and being like, no, fuck you. I'm not doing it. The, <laughs> yeah. The process gets a little more sophisticated with sure.
1: every naturally because you have these hats fucking off to the costume makeup department yeah. who are trying with every movie to make it that much more humane and that much more bearable for right. these actors.
0: Right. But you're like figuring things out as you go along. And then you have, once the sequel gets greenlit, it's like the first thing you can do is like, okay, Let's R and D like need glue. Can yeah, we, this can new, they yeah, this new Yeah, this <laughs> new Mystique stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's get this let's get this yeah. better. I mean, she looks
1: incredible. And and the behind the scenes stuff, they had all these questions of like, we don't want it to look like paint. We want it to look like her skin. Right. So how can we right. what combination, what concoction of of technology and makeup can we have that? That's crazy.
2: Totally crazy. It's the most befuddling part to me, because like why do <laughs> <Yes>. that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The comic book version of this character looks like If you were to just take the core designs and go to someone that's never seen the movies, or seen the comics, and say, which one's the wacky comic book thing? And which one's the one they use for a, a movie that's more realistic and down to earth? Everyone will say, oh, well, this one where it's like a white suit and just kind of blue, not crazy scales. And every decision was made to make it more grounded and easier to shoot and film. <laughs> Yet all this time and effort was, it's kind of almost sadistic like singer almost yeah, wanted yeah. to put somebody through this.
1: Yeah, or never cared enough about what adding 6 hours of prep time would do to like a
0: person. Not just her, but also like the makeup team, you know? Mm-hmm. Like just everybody involved with with having to go and, there. and yeah, and like you said Wally, like in all my research I
1: couldn't find a single conceptual or narrative reason why Mystique needed to be completely naked with like blue scales. Instead of, like, a white tunic.
0: Yeah. I'm sure it has something to do with the idea of, like, a chameleon and, like, scales and, you know, making some sort of connection there is, I'm sure, where it came from. But it's dumb. It doesn't need to be that way. (laughs) She could just be blue. She doesn't have to look like that. I remember, I think Scott's heard this story before, but um, I
1: loved X-Men and I had, like, my little action figure Wolverine, but I needed a bad guy for him to fight. So I went to the store. And uh, at this point, it was kind of late in the summer, so there were only uh, Professor X's and Mystique's. And so I, I bought Mystique, and I don't know how I got it past my mom, but somehow she didn't notice it until I was back home. She saw it on like my dresser, and she was like, "What the hell is that?" And I was like, "It's it's Mystique. She's an X Men." She's like, "Why is she naked?" And I had to be like, "I don't know," because <laughs> like the conversation we just had, <laughs> it makes no sense. <laughs> um. She, no- she knocks out Senator Kelly. Yeah,
0: in this weird mystique thing that I feel like doesn't really stick around past Rebecca Romanes demos. the whole like foot-centric fighting oh, style. Her, her kind of like kicking... Yeah, like where she like wraps her long model legs around somebody, you know, um, <laughs> in a small space. Yeah, uh, yeah. She's fetishized in a way that Toad and Sabretooth
1: and yeah. are never even... You know, hinted at. Yeah. Or suggested. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So then we go to an X ray. It's the X ray exposition where Wolverine gets X rayed and then they all start talking about Adamantium all over his skeleton and the claws. And uh, we're already getting some Wolverine flirting with Gene. Yeah. Couldn't wait to get my shirt off again. Yeah. I don't blame Femica Jansen for this at all. Uh, but like oh the chemistry it's not there the chemistry's not there Hugh Jackman's doing all the heavy lifting here it doesn't work and I don't think it it's, it works a little better in X2 but here all of the love triangle stuff is so forced because it's like well that's what happens in the comics like there's that moment at the end of the movie where he, where he talks about somebody else having his heart and I'm like what? Based on what? What are you even talking about? You've known this woman for 2 days and you've had you've talked to her exactly 3 times. Yeah. Not my not my favorite thing.
2: I I think the linchpin of the lack of that chemistry is actually James Marsden. If that was stronger, if their chemistry was stronger, then I think the kind of coy weirdness that she plays with Wolverine makes more sense. Sure. Like Funk Jensen. This is Xenia on a top. She could have chemistry with a trash can, and I believe that. Like I think she's very good at that. I think she's just playing it in a way where she's kind of a nerd with a long term boyfriend and doesn't get flirted with a lot, and she's kind of like, oh, okay, okay this is kind of all right, neat. Let's play with Never see what in a million
0: years would I ever believe that Femka Jansen hasn't hasn't been flirted with a lot. Any version of Femka Jansen. Sure. But if
2: there was like a super strong relationship with Scott, that yeah. kind of one where you're like church kids who've been dating since you were at like sunday school that reads like what they're trying to do but there's so little with cyclops both on the script and on the screen that like i I think all of that just becomes this sort of wishy-washy softness that then why does anyone care about this girl she's just kind of like the wet blanket of all fun
1: what were you gonna say nick No, I was going to make a joke. I I feel like um, I haven't read enough X-Men comics to really get a handle on Jean Grey, so I couldn't tell you if this is like an accurate portrayal of Jean Grey. No. But I wouldn't say.
0: Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say so.
2: I'm I'm just Um, desperately glad that Singer never read the early, early 60s issues where it was revealed that Xavier has the hots for Jean Grey, because they absolutely would have made it into the movie, and that would have just derailed the whole thing.
0: Yikes. We get the scene where imprisoned Senator Kelly gets exposed to Magneto's mutant easy bake oven, whatever this thing is. Um, It's it's radiation. It forces a, a mutation. Let's just say God works too slow. Yeah. And it takes a lot out of him. I have absolutely no idea what magnetism has to do with how this machine works or anything. It's very, it's not even pseudoscience. It's just like straight up like magic science. This whole MacGuffin, I don't even know if you would call this a McGuffin. Kind of the plot device
1: of he's created a way to turn regular people into mutants. Yeah. He's going to use it on the govern on like world leaders. Right.
0: I get it. I get especially as a first X-Men movie. Like it makes a lot of sense because it's like it's the difference between teaching empathy and forcing empathy. Right. Which is very much, you know, Aaron versus a, Charles. Right. A very much core ideology between those two characters. And 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 I absolutely understand where you go from this. But like, there had to be a better way than this thing. I don't know. I don't love it. Uh, but I do like it as a way to, you know, you start this movie being very empathetic for Magneto because of what we see that he went through as as a kid. And then... You hate Senator Kelly, and two-thirds of the way through this movie, they cross, and you suddenly feel empathy for Senator Kelly and what Magneto has done, and you lose empathy for Magneto because of what he's trying to do to Rogue. And I think that's a really interesting villain structure. Yeah, I'm wording it like that. I
1: like how it's underplayed in the movie. Yeah. Not too fine a point is made on it. Yeah. But like you said, kind of, if you do revisit this movie again and again- these kind of things become like oh i like i like this yeah i really like ian mckellen in these scenes again like he he actually seems like he's the protagonist of his own story he isn't playing villainous and i think that's why this character particularly this performance of this character became so iconic and so beloved absolutely. by fans
0: absolutely
2: yeah. yeah, he means it when he says, "Oh, as soon as we're done with this, like we're gonna be on the same side." I'm not like cackling evil, like "Ha you're right. gonna pay." It's gonna be like, "You'll understand. You'll see soon enough."
0: Yeah, like we get in that flashback, he says, "You know, welcome, brother," or whatever yeah. it is. He's yeah, it's yeah, like he a, calls a warm, a like
2: shoulder embrace while he's next to death and, and how pissed he is at a uh, saber tooth you know, a little later for losing him, not because, oh, I've lost my hostage. Like that's, that doesn't stop him in any way, shape or form from his plan. It's that he's bummed that he can't help this new mutant brother like find himself. So we're going to be talking about
0: The Weapon X a lot in this series because it comes up often. I I can think of at least three more movies in which it is very directly referenced. Yeah. Um, But it
1: is interesting that this is the version that Really introduces like the iconography and the look of Weapon X, even in these like super 2000s flashbacks.
0: Yeah, like the the drawn on like dots and all of that just comes straight out of the comics, which you can only imagine is just like Feige just being like, just do this. People will love it. It'll be great.
2: Yeah, It feels like that was the one bit they're like, hey, Kevin, can you just like go make sure that happens with our second unit? Because we're just, too busy yeah. doing this uh, Statue of Liberty stuff. Then he comes back with this like beautiful, perfect, like almost short film about the Weapon X experience. And they cut it yeah. up into like 10 seconds of the movie.
1: I think this movie does a really good job of getting you hyped for X-Men 2. Mm-hmm. And like, I guess in the context of just this movie, you get to see Logan's equivalent of kissing or his boyfriend and like sucking the life out of him. Right. It's like this is where his trauma comes from. Right. It, this is uh, when Jean tries to psychically connect with him. Right. Yeah. And like that's what she sees. Yeah.
0: Well, he's dreaming too. Oh, he's dreaming. Uh, yeah, that's he's right. dreaming, right. and then he wakes up from his nightmare and stabs Rogue. Oh, this um, is that scene. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of sucking the life out of people. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. She uh, steals his healing factor, which is I loved. Yeah. loved it because I I never
1: clocked this before, but she grabs his face. Yeah. And heals herself, and that's how she doesn't die from the wounds. Right. But watching it this time, I was struck that like she thinks that she's about to die. Uh-huh. She this is it. And so she wants to touch someone.
0: Oh yeah. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, she seems like surprised when it happens. Yeah, and she never seems the thing that I love about that scene too is she's never like mad at him. She never blames him. You know? Yes. It's just like this mutual thing where it's like, okay. I'm not mad at you for doing this, but you did do it. So I do need to like suck the life out of you for a second. You know, like, so there's, there's also that at play and I I love all of it. I think it's a
2: really good scene and it's,
0: and it's a setup for a payoff later in the movie.
2: And my absolute favorite part of all that is the just immense weight of what a bunch of other students would feel if yeah. one of the other kids almost killed somebody and, and yeah it's exacerbated by mystique kind of rubbing salt <laughs> in the wounds as fake bobby Stand in the pot but there's still that tonality of it like the whispers and the couple kids are watching as it happened yeah. what's going on and like the adults are talking and like no one's mad but like because also no one's going to go out and like have an assembly about hey guess what this happened to rogue and this is it's all good and everything's fine like all these rumors are going to run rampant and they're still kids even though this, this is open environment where you can be yourself right. still humans like you're mutants but they're still human yeah definitely
0: yeah so fake bobby aka mystique loves Uh, the drama yeah loves the drama tells rogue to get the hell out of here before she gets in trouble i remember as a kid the line like the
1: professor is furious yeah i was like no he's not that's mystique (laughs) yeah yeah i um, can't imagine patrick stewart being like furious
2: oh boy but it's also Uh, exactly what kids would say like oh the principal's so mad at you So now we know that Mystique is
0: on the grounds, and at the same time, we are introduced to Sabrebro, the way that they find all mutants, and Professor X uses it to find Rogue, and then immediately, Wolverine leaves, he bails, he steals a motorcycle and goes after her. Oh my god,
1: that moment where the bike speeds up and that look of like Hugh Jackman's face, like the joy on his face. yeah, That's like another really key audience melding with Wolverine moment. Totally. Of like in the super serious kind of dark movie, this moment of just like watching a dude have fun stealing this dick
0: motorcycle. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. But then it's just like immediately upon introducing Cerebro, Mysterio or or Mysterio. I kept doing that in my notes. I kept writing Mysterio instead of Mystique. Mystique breaks in poisons it with like some green stuff and then bales they don't introduce Cerebro earlier in the movie. We It's introduced literally five minutes before it becomes a problem, <laughs> um, which I, I, I kind of respect. I can't help but respect. Yeah. Uh, um, shout out to John
1: Meyer, the production designer of this movie. Also, uh, Memoirs of a Geisha, mm. Chicago, Rob Marshall a lot. And he will come back in Days of Future Past. Brian Singer would actually assemble a lot of the production crew again. And in an interview for Days of Future Past, he talks about how, they were given free reign to design things like Cerebro and the X-Jet mm-hmm. to have it look like theirs. And so they were like, we saw it as like creating this underground world that exists like beneath the school of beneath the world, skipping forward to days of future past. He was like, Oh, these designs have become iconic. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you kind of see it like the first time he rolls out to Cerebro, it's this really arresting image of like the sphere and this, like the long stretch You know, you don't think about it, but like in retrospect, it's really memorable design
0: work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. To the point where, you know, in first class when we have like this sort of ramshackle one, but you recognize it immediately as soon as you walk into the set. You're like, oh, this is a Cerebro. Yeah, (laughs) it's pretty great. But yeah, we get a train heart to heart between Wolverine and Rogue. It's really great where she's just like, I heard the professor was mad at me. And Wolverine's like, no, he's not. That was probably Mystique. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like kind yeah. of like having the same reaction that you had earlier. <laughs> I, um, I
1: like that line where he's like, you know, I think this professor, because he, he, even he has been pretty like antagonistic and kind of douchey to Professor X. Mm-hmm. But he's like, I really think this guy wants to help you.
0: And that's rare for people like us. Yeah. And it's yeah. like
1: that moment that she's like, OK, I'll come back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So then the uh, the X-Men show up at the train station. There's a fight with the Brotherhood yeah. while Magneto attacks the train in a really good scene of Magneto just lifting that adamantium skeleton up and bending his claws, which mm-hmm. for some reason causes me pain and I don't have claws, <laughs> but it causes a very specific pain uh, to me every time I see this. And all of this leads to the revelation that they actually want Rogue and that they're going to leave with Rogue. Uh, there's a great police standoff scene, which I love this scene, with Xavier mind-controlling Toad and Sabretooth simultaneously while Magneto is holding all of the cops hostage with their own guns. You homo sapiens and your guns. Oh, just such... What, a, what an X-Men scene, man. I really, really love this a lot. It
1: might be the purest X-Men scene in the movie. Yeah. You have everything. You have Magneto... Testing the limits of Charles' ideology. Yeah, being like, I'm going to show you why you're full of shit and yeah. why you're going to lose because you won't let this one cop die.
0: Yeah, that single bullet just pushing into that guy's skull. Oh. Oh, and the practical cars being dropped. Yes. In the DVD, there's like shots of
1: them being lifted and dropped, and you just you can't beat the weight yeah. of that
0: no it's so good practical effects man it's so fun though not all the wire work in this movie's great
2: <laughs> i also just want to like throw props because at uh, this one time the reveal is made how ballsy is it to like present the main mcguffin of the movie or is the most popular character but then in the reality it's not like the, the most popular character is literally a throwaway he is thrown away when he's confronted yeah. with the main villain and you like said i was like, looking for you it's so great cuz from a, a a pop culture standpoint like Wolverine's probably you know the most known version of that character he's been set up as the star of it and and everything makes sense mm-hmm. and that yep. is the most effective perspective switch on who the focus of the villain is. Everyone always talks about, well, Wolverine's so great, except for he's made a metal and X-Men's biggest villain is a metal-manipulating man. (laughs) I love that the movie, the very first instance they could, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really dumb. This is gonna really suck for him every time he tries to fight me. And he just yeah. <laughs> makes really quick work of it. I, I adore that. I think it's my most favorite like character beats in the film is is all in this mm. section.
0: Yeah, Senator Kelly who has escaped the Brotherhood after becoming a goopy water mutant. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Uh, hell yeah. Yeah. This was insane. The special effects supervisor Chauncey Cunningham talks about I mean like the levels. You have water without refraction you have water with refraction you have water with murkiness you have water without murkiness you have skin that's being highlighted you have skin that is highlighted right. every single stage of this guy's final like blah, like explosion had to be designed layer after layer and be different from one another and wow. it, it was a herculean task in 2000 it doesn't look
0: bad now to be honest no no it actually because it, i feel like they didn't overreach you know they mm-hmm. just like hyper focused on sort of this one thing Yeah. And I I think they nailed it. Uh, 39 hours per frame of work. Wow. Wow. That's crazy.
2: And credit to Bruce Davison, to the actor, who really nailed the physicality of a body at war with itself. Um, And just like the fear and everything in his eyes. Yeah.
1: And like you said earlier, Scott, ending this really loathsome character Very inspired by people that we hate like in real life. Yeah. And this character and this this real moment of softness and vulnerability with Storm. Yeah. Where he's like, Well, you have one less person to worry about.
0: Denying us the satisfying death of this character. Right. And sympathize him at the end. Yep. That's like the most X-Men thing that they could do, honestly. Because that's the whole thing (laughs) with with X-Men, is it's all about empathy. Like that's what everything about X-Men is, is just empathy and belief in people and it's just the way that they yeah. weaved that through the character arcs of your protagonists, antagonists. is just yeah like i think even so well done. i think
1: uh senator kelly like knocking on the door of the mansion yeah. interrupts a scene between logan and storm where she's like, join us. And he's like, what, be an X-Man? Like, you people are idiots. Yeah. Everyone outside that door wants to kill you, and you're putting on a leather jumpsuit to try and help them. Right. That's stupid. Right. That does resonate today. Is it on the people who are being oppressed to take the first step? And why so often are, are are they the ones asked to find humanity when like Senator Kelly has never been challenged you know people are never asked to find the humanity of like trans right. children or people that are different than them. It seems to always be on the oppressed to look past the savagery and violence right like storm does by holding this person's hand and they're right. until she gets
2: like grossed out and runs away yeah right right yeah. Are we are we gonna skip over the Stanley cameo?
1: Well, I mean, you it's know, cool. it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's our first one, right? It kind of speaks to the difference between, again, this and like kind of the MCU where this is literally a cameo Yeah, where you have to be like an eagle eyed, true believer viewer to be like, that's Stan
0: Lee. Yeah. He where, doesn't even get a medium shot. Like, uh-huh. yeah, he's just he's in there. a crowd shot, uh-huh. a crowd wide shot where your focus is somewhere else.
2: Yeah. Um, and he's just doing like the slack jaw. Like, it's not even yeah. like the, the later ones where there's at least some An thing insert. he's doing. Yeah, that's, I can yeah. see
1: that guy's wang. Yeah, right. <laughs> also yeah. on the beach scene, really quick, this has nothing to do with X-Men, but the scene of the little boy poking at like the pond scum or whatever with the stick and the little sister being like, please let it go. Like, please let it go. Like, let it go. I'm telling mom. I'm like, that is the most realistic sibling interaction I've ever seen in a movie.
0: <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah, for Just sure. Some, I don't know. So Jean Grey, before he turns into water, Jean Grey re- reads his mind, learns about the mutant-making machine, and then they're like, okay, we have to find Rogue, so I'm going to go back into Cerebro and find her again, just yeah. like we did I last really, time. I really
1: like that scene, and I also kind of want to give a little bit of shout out to James Marsden, because mm. he finds little moments in this movie really did remind me of Cyclops. Sure. Where I'm like, that's Scott Summers. Yeah. there is this cool moment where they're talking about what would happen if Jean Grey used Cerebro, and Scott's like, it's dangerous is, like, it's, it's dangerous if you did that. You know, yeah. kind of the protectiveness of Jean. Right. And I think, like you said, you, the kind of the chemistry starts to grow in moments like this. Yes. I think it's, it's really cool because we set up the Jean's afraid. She's still, it's kind of living underneath Professor X. So giving her this little arc of like, I'm going to do what I have to do. I'm going to put on this helmet and test my limits. Right.
0: Is a cool little arc for her. Right. So uh, Xavier puts on the helmet. Gets poisoned by the, the, the bad green, juice. The, the bad juice, yeah. And then Jean Grey uh, fixes it, and then does it herself to find Rogue. Figures out where she is, and they put it all together in this like three D like metal yeah, map thing. That was cool. Yeah, that was interesting. I don't know how who is controlling that or how. But it reminds uh, me a lot of the uh, that's the Stark
1: tech we'd see in that first Iron Man movie
0: for sure. For sure. Yeah. That leads us into uh, Act Three, which is. Uh, like, literally, like, almost a full third of the movie, which is not the usual thing. Uh, so I was kind of as uh, soon struck as by that, that. As soon
1: as the X-Jet comes out of the basketball court, yeah. uh, I think the movie really kicks into high gear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: I love the that if they can catch up with the bird, the X-Jet, they deserve to catch us. Is such a Scott Summers line. That's pretty good. And then there's the infamous, of course. Yeah. What did you expect? Yellow spandex. Exactly. Um, Chris Claremont himself said that it would be, quote, disturbing to see the yellow and blue uniform in real life. Like, even back then, when he was like pitching the movie, yeah. their kind of thought process is like, if, okay, why? Why would they be dressed like that? Right. There's this really cool moment in the behind the scenes stuff where they're in a trailer and they're wearing the costumes for the first time. They're like trying them on and they're in the trailer. And Hugh Jackman's like, Are, are you happy? Like, what do you think? And Brian Singer's like, You know, it's okay. It's, ex- I, I get it. And he's like, I kind of like, looking at them all on a rack because i'm like oh that's a team uh-huh it reads like they're a team they're a tactical team they want to go out at night so they should be wearing all black leather uh-huh. once again it was kind of like grounding it in reality right he says something really interesting where he's like i can imagine to me these are the x-men one uniforms and i think in the sequels i want to branch out and have them get more and more personalized with every movie
0: oh. and i don't
1: think that happens no um, no, it never does. But that was kind of the thought process: is like, yeah. what would what would this team of people really wear?
0: Well, and I think I think these these outfits ended up inspiring the the sort of iconic outfits of the new X Men uh, with the yellow jackets with the big X and mm-hmm. and, um, and it was just that sort of like modern take on this post Matrix post Blade, right, right. It doesn't age great. Like it's very it's very much like it still feels like the nineties. It's kind of
1: the mindset but. of the whole movie is what yeah. what did you expect yellow spandex? Yeah. You know, we're not doing that Marvel kid stuff. Right. And then like you said, while like in the background there's Kevin Feige, it's like, oh, some kid stuff's pretty cool. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> they even there's concept art of Wolverine wearing a f- uh, mask. Yeah, the face mask. And right. it's like black leather, but he has like the mask. Yeah. And it looks like Batman without ear ear pointies. Oh. And yeah. And he was like, I don't want to lose your face, Hugh. Like I don't I don't I don't want to lose your face for the entire third of the movie.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. I think a big thing too that gets lost to the context of time is you can't have just jumped right to brightly colored Jim Lee uniforms. I think if you did that in sure. two thousand, then it would have made it a harder bridge to people that aren't Comfortable, or we're not comfortable with these sort of movies. That's still associated nipples on a bat suit with anything that comes from a comic book, and so I think that this was a very necessary step. And then you have something like Spider-Man that comes out next, which the Spider-Man's as iconic of a costume as possible, so you can get away sure. with that. But then Green Goblin is a Power Ranger and is also a green right. version of exactly a spy- of these X-Men suits, where it's just kind of like vaguely muscular, and it's just Tech. it's oh, what yeah. would you have if you were flying around on a glider? Oh, okay, yeah, right. but. So I think that you need that step to get there and to be successful and to branch out. I think that Singer's intent to be more personalized would have been the right step if they would have gone in, I think you didn't need to get to two thousand twelve before you can you know have almost essentially the reverse of that line in Avengers, where Captain America's like, isn't that a little old fashioned?" and they're well, like, "Well, I, we yeah. need a little old fashioned right now
1: we're we're ready now, we're ready
2: for this exactly yeah, and, and I think yeah. that you needed these steps, but like I don't begrudge. What do you expect, Yellow Spandex? I was a mark for that line. I, uh, that was yeah. an applause line for 14 and me in the audience at that theater because I, I do know the Yellow Spandex. I, but I also, I, I'm loving what I'm seeing. So like, that's their way of saying like, wink, wink nudge, nudge. Like, we're all on the same page, but this is the right. reality that we're playing in. And I think nowadays, yeah, because we yeah. just have a different context of what these movies can be, we look back at that and we say, Oh, well, they were afraid of it. It's like, yeah, they were afraid of it, but also like, that's what the world, was expecting and needed at the time. And we needed to have these iterative steps to get to where we are now. And then the next era of this, like if they don't go full Jim Lee style costuming for whatever they do next with the X-Men and the MCU, which like, would make no sense not to then you all of this you're going to kind of look back at it it's like an important 20 year window where you you got to start here with black leather blade and x-men and then you can get to to full yellow spandex in a way that isn't just believable but is capturing the zeitgeist of the world
1: yeah we're now we're like hungry for that real wolverine suit
2: yeah yeah (laughs) the the little shot of it in the deleted scene from the wolverine yeah. It's right. we're ready and it's going yeah. when it, to when it does happen it's going to kill in a way that it never could have done if they didn't start at that point.
0: So then we are on Liberty Island and they're in the gift shop we have that great oh. gag where oh, the metal um, detector goes off.
1: Yeah, uh, uh the the little part where they're going over the hill that is um the first shot of them ever in the costumes. Mm-hmm. The crew like applauded when they came out of that trailer and that was the moment where Hugh Jackman was like, "Oh, this like means a lot to people mm-hmm. like we're just me doing this i'm living out generations of people's dreams yeah this was their first time wearing the leather if you've ever worn leather you kind of have to live in it and it kind of has to mold with you yeah so none of them could get over the the wall yeah they were like trying to climb over it and it was like super awkward and so uh. they had to like there's like a cool shot of like them talking about how difficult it is like james Marsden's like i don't know man i don't know if i can do it and hugh jackman just like eat shit <laughs> and falls over the wall.
0: But yeah, so we just get we get, you know, again, some more brotherhood fights. We get But what do you think about
1: Claw going into the metal detector? And then the middle finger, the middle finger. Yeah, I mean,
0: there's a lot of like more of like those jokey jokes in this section. And like some of them work. I think this one works. And I think the you're a dick works. That's I mean, that was that was I remember seeing that in the theaters and the crowd. Absolute explosion. Yeah. Yeah. An explosion of laughter. And you know, what's
1: uh, what I really love is like, yeah, like you're a dick and the middle finger claw is great. But Marsden's reaction to both. Mm -hmm. there's such like i'm starting to like this guy but he's an asshole yeah that i think that's why those moments are so fun for the audience
2: yeah yeah it's like oh you son of a bitch it's you're working on me yeah (laughs) Yeah. Uh, oh it's gonna end in a threesome isn't
0: it toad takes out uh gene gray pretty quickly which is interesting we get Uh, a cool little ray park showcase yeah yeah we get that little thing with the stick where he just goes full ray park for a second and then poses and i'm like all right I mean, you know, I'm glad you got that shot in the movie, but that's really silly that he took the time to do that. There's a sense of fun to it, but it also feels
1: like we are n- it's not quite a comic book movie fight. feels like action movie, but they are taking advantage
0: of the powers in a cool way. Yeah. Everything's very quiet. It's like they're fighting in a library. You know, like, it's just, <laughs> I don't know. There's something about the tone of it that's just, like, very quiet. Like, they're all whispering while they're fighting.
2: I don't know. I mean, the reality is, this is kind of what, mutant fighting would probably look like in real life. Yeah! Like, tactical using of the power to, like, either intimidate or take out different people. True. and And being a little more defensive and posture than, like, outwardly over-attacking. I can... See the intent of the choreographer of like, all right, how are we going to do this? You know, they're in these leather outfits. You know, it's just these dark areas. You know, they have all these certain powers. So, how can we maximize and find useful ways to use the powers in this environment? I, I think it all makes sense. Like none of none of it tracks is odd. You know, even right. Storm like going up the, <laughs> the elevator up, shaft. Yeah. They, like actually, yeah, like that's the most effective way to use wind to push you up somewhere. Like you're not going to go yeah, out yeah, of the yeah. building yeah. and fly around and come back in. It right, just, right. It, but it's also very. Subdued because you know there's nothing flashy about it, right? Like what does Jean Grey
1: do? Yeah, she has has she's telepathy, right? You know, (laughs) yeah. There's some really charming footage of after storm rising out of the gate, like these big, huge wind machines, and then just the crew just throwing debris at Ray Park, (laughs) just kind of behind the camera, and it was
0: just so endearing. Oh boy, yeah. So we should talk about you know what happens when a toad gets struck by lightning. Same thing as everything else. I think I just did a better line reading than Halle Berry did. I don't blame Halle Berry. I, I blame Brian Singer because I just don't think he knows how to shoot comedy very well. Like, jokes. Like, he just, I don't think he gets them a lot. And I think that he has a very specific sense of humor, if he even has one, really. I think that the idiosyncratic uh, humor that Joss Whedon has, which that everyone knows, like, that is the only line left in the movie from his drafts of X-Men. I can picture it in a Joss Whedon thing. But here it's executed so poorly across everyone involved, like editing, directing, performance. It's just totally botched and uh, somehow for some reason left in the movie. I guess it has to be left in the movie because otherwise Toad just disappears. But yeah, it's not great. It's definitely not great. I see why people have issues with it. The execution is
2: uh, not great for sure. wow really nothing well i mean you're you're exactly (laughs) right though it's like it's you're kicking a dead horse it's just obviously it looks like no one understood the joke on on set so the editor that's probably the best take they had and they just have to put it in there
1: and it's probably a good example of like why that whedon script was scrapped right as as much as people seem to enjoy it they were getting like oh but it is not a movie brian singer would have wanted to make right and if you're gonna hire brian singer this is the You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. 100%. I think audiences maybe would have really enjoyed that Whedon script coming to life. I'm sure, I mean, he he writes... I mean, The Avengers is still like a really, really fun movie.
0: I mean, there's probably a lot of that script. He probably reused it in his Astonishing X-Men run. You know? There's probably, like, lines and dialogue exchanges and jokes and things that he, he ended up reusing in there, so...
2: You know, one of the things that I think is the weirdest missed opportunity is just how lost Halle Berry seems in the role. Like, I think that she finds it of much better by X-Men Two And by uh, days of future past, I'm like, hell yeah, Holly Berry. Like you're, you are storm queen. Go at it. She's trying to find an accent. Am I supposed to play it as like, you know, a teacher, like a former student on literal African queen. Like there's times where she's kind of playing it in all these different directions. Mm -hmm. And she, absolutely needed the support of someone that understood the character's history right. and really any of this era of comic book movies in general. Like, I mean, Josh Brolin had a better understanding of Jonah Hex and Jonah Hex than Holly Berry seemed to have <laughs> in this film. And for right. such an iconic character as Storm, uh, it's just right. like that to me is the biggest missed opportunities is she yeah. should have been a breakout. And instead it's just sort of like, Oh yeah, she's a very famous actress. I'm glad she gets paid.
1: There was uh, originally uh, an intro to Storm right after the Holocaust opening of Magneto that would have showed Storm in Kenya, uh, accidentally causing a storm, like in her village. Oh. Uh, and there's actually like Tom DeSanto is giving some random nerds like a tour of like all of like you know like the walls of like concept art yeah. and like magazine stuff. And he's like, oh, and here we have Aurora's. Uh, and there's like you know these images of like a Kenyan village and stuff. Yeah. And, like So that was planned at some point, but then cut. Oh man. That would have been cool. That would have been neat to see. But then also, like in retrospect, kind of weird. Of like, well, why just storm?
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which
1: Absolutely. is maybe why it was good. Kind
0: of- <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that. You know the end of this movie. The crux of it ends up being Magneto and Rogue, and those are the two characters we get their origin of their right. mutant powers at the beginning of the movie. That is kind of interesting. So yeah, lots of fighting. They end up getting X Men get get captured and and tied to things. Uh, well, in the, the head metal of the, the metal
1: bars yeah. of the Statue of Liberty, right? the Ma- Magneto uses the med adhesive. It's really cool. I I think these movies are really fun when they get into like the power games of, like, well, how would Magneto restrain them? Right. And then, like, he's such a dick that he knows to put Jean Grey and Cyclops, like, face-to-face, inches apart from each other, and then take his goggles, and the audience knows what that means now. Yeah. And so they're like,
2: ugh. My absolute favorite line is from this bit, too, is where he's got them all trapped, and, like, Storm, like, her eyes go white, or she's about to use the powers, and uh, Magneto's just like, you're gonna shoot some lightning into, you know, a three-story you know, lightning rod or whatever, and I thought no, you actually. lived at a school. It's yeah, <laughs> just, like, the way he school. says this, it's, <laughs> like, so perfectly, like, catty Ian McKellen. And it's just, oh, like, yeah, I just... Right. That tickled me so, so much as a kid.
1: It's so. great, and it's specifically, like, I've been... We've been doing this forever. This is not a new rivalry. Mm-hmm. Scott, you mentioned as the audience goes from sympathizing with Magneto to wanting him to fail, understanding that he's a villain... There's this great moment where Magneto's given his whole spiel, and then you can hear Marie like like crying for, for help, right. and Wolverine's like, you're so full of shit. Yeah. Like, you should be up there. Yeah. And If but, you believe in this so much, you would be up there. And Magneto doesn't say a damn
0: thing. Yeah. He just flies directly up, because it's right. like up, called out. Yep. Yep. It's really good. Yeah. It's really good. You can say all you want, and I will agree with it hundred percent that this machine is stupid it's a stupid <laughs> the the mutant making machine is stupid but everything around all of the movie stuff and right. character stuff around it is really really good um as dumb as the mutant making machine is Just saying it <laughs> yeah um <laughs> we get wolverine uh versus saber tooth hey, on the head Bob, of the statue I'm not finished with you yet yeah um really good like a pretty pretty good fight pretty
1: fun oh i want to talk about What I think is the dumbest thing ever. Oh, sure. And something that I really was never. I've always wondered about that super matrixy moment where Wolverine goes slow mo on like the little pike of Statue of Liberty's crown. Oh, yeah. And watching it today, I never picked up that he's doing like a spin. If you follow the claws, they're raking around the thing and he's like doing a full spin. Oh. And in 20 years, I never picked up that that's what that slow-mo shot
0: is doing oh okay interesting then we get this uh this cool like cyclops maneuver where he like steals the goggles back and throws it in and it's like open your eyes and then like oh thanks i love all of this because it really feels like they're a team yes 100 percent. i love that i love the strategizing of like getting wolverine up up oh, to the yeah. torch. And they're like, well, if
1: you do this, I'll do that. No, that can't happen. And Wolverine's like, look, if I do this, even if I fail, blast the damn thing. And I yeah. was, as a kid, I'm like, it's the fucking X-Men.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. So he goes up there. They take care of business. Cyclops takes the shot, takes out Magneto. Super Cyclops. Like, I see, I have a shot. I'm taking it. Yeah. No, I'm not asking for permission. I'm taking it. Yeah, it's really good. Find out Mystique's still alive after being stabbed by Wolverine. Mm-hmm. She's masquerading mm-hmm. as, a, as a security guard. Wolverine
1: lets Rogue
0: use her ability like sacrifices himself it's great because she is dead Mm -hmm. and then like it takes a minute for her to wake up and you know that she's awake and alive because the veins start bulging in his face Mm -hmm. it's a really great like cinematic usage of that setup from earlier because
1: the movie's been teaching you since the first scene what rogues powers do and what they look like when someone
0: is being sucked out so to speak right and so to have that rewarded right and how it's not something she's conscious of So the fact that he can touch her and nothing's happening means that she's dead, you know, or at least unconscious. And when it starts to happen, it's like, oh, she's awake. She's okay. She's going to be okay. Mm. And the
1: score during all of this is like some of my favorite score of the movie, just that that the, the fulfillment of the rogue Wolverine theme kind of playing out in this climax yeah well,
2: and then that's where you get like the big swell of music as was mentioned earlier like this the emotional climax of this movie is not defeating magneto it's wolverine saving rope all the characters you've been introduced to th- that's the driving force throughout all of this and it's not until you get that moment of relief that she's alive that then the, the music does that thing where it lets you know like here's your moment this is it this is your yeah. catharsis is is released uh it's not the the big villain moment but it's this interpersonal relationship right. between two members of the team and that is the most x-men thing possible someone
1: walking into a multiplex in 2000 that's like x-men i don't know what this is but it's like oh this is so cool the guy and the girl that met in the car right. he helped the girl right and like but he saved her and their friends now and they trust each other and yeah. they found this home They found each other, yeah, you know, and like it. Yeah, it works on such a movie level.
0: And then we enter the sort of uh, denouement, the postscript. Yeah, um, we have Rogue looking very much like Rogue because now she has her white streaks in her hair. She's a little like. She's kind of wearing the color. She almost looks kind of like her X-Men evolution. Yeah, version. she's got the green and with the like elbow high uh Love. gloves and just she but but a short sleeve shirt. Like she looks like Rogue, which I was really excited about when I was watching the movie as a as a kid. Uh Professor Xavier introduces Alkali Lake. Yeah.
1: And like I think this is where answers may be for you. Yep. It's very Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, of like like job of like, uh, like like, Jabba the hut. Yeah, yeah. Like Wally said, like this is not the end of the movie. This is going to be an ongoing story, and right. we're int- we're giving you reasons to like want to come back in
0: three years. Yeah, yeah. We, we find th- out that Mystique is now professionally uh, carrying on Senator Kelly's uh, <laughs> career. I was wrong. Thank you. No more questions. <laughs> yeah. And uh, apparently, Storm is the only person on the planet who has the power to pause on the exact right frame to see Mystique's when he, eyes when she like burps or whatever happens. Yeah. Well, no, she's in pain because she's still impaled. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. And Wolverine steals the bike again. Yeah. And he steals the bike again and leaves the dog tags behind with Rogue to to promise that he'll be back. And us. Promise us that he'll be back. And then we get the iconic, like, plastic chess scene. The plastic prison. Neither Patrick Stewart or Ian McKellen knew how to play chess when filming this. (laughs) Wow. How is that at that age?
1: How is that possible? Come on, guys. Yeah. But yeah, this is an iconic, I mean, like, you know, I feel a great swell of pity for anyone walking into that school looking for trouble and then how that leads into X2 and like, oh, I'll, yeah, I'll always be there to stop you.
0: It's it's great. There's a lot of like promises that I don't think when they wrote them were meant to be promises for the sequel that all end up paying off in the sequel in really interesting ways. I mean, we'll we'll see how it works yeah. out. I, I'm going to like look into it, but I, f- I have a feeling that it's Michael Doherty- watching that first movie and being like, okay, what do I want paid off from what the movie I just watched, you know, and like just making a list and then trying to build a movie out of that. But uh, we'll see how it goes.
2: Yeah. I I don't think any of that is meant to be like, Oh, you're going to pay this off in the sequel. Uh, I think right. it's meant to be more of like this is a mission statement for the X Men. Like, Professor X is yeah. always going to be there. You know, Magneto is always going to try to do something. And if anyone comes to the right. school, like, it's going to be trouble. Like, these are just truisms of the franchise that mm-hmm. are just yeah. stated. So brilliantly, so emphatically by two of the most brilliant working actors to ever appear in like superhero movies that they just demand to be answered. And I think that's what X-Men 2, like you look at it like, all right, we're going to make X-Men 2. You're like, you know what? We should probably send people for the school and we should probably have Magneto and and, and (laughs) Xavier interact with their you know conflicting ideals. Uh, And then in the sequel, they you know, do the very clever thing of, like, overlapping yeah. the ideals and, you know... I mean, right. the, the
1: plastic prison set doesn't change at all between movies. Yeah. It literally... it's It might be the cleanest baton toss between X-Men movies that we get, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I think, looking at it as a whole, it gets a lot of little things. You know, it, it misses a lot and misses a lot of opportunities, but mm-hmm. it nails so much the soul of this franchise, the soul of these characters in the story, that I think it's why when this movie came out, diehard fans and like kids and newbies were able to like glom onto something because it does get certain really unalienable things about the X Men a hundred percent correct. Yeah. Not a lot of it, but it what what it gets right really matters, I think. Yeah. Closing thoughts,
2: Wally? I mean I, I think the the one prevailing thought um that that I have, you know, looking back at the importance of this film. And just for, in turn, in yeah. from all the different ways that uh, you you can mean that, and that's not to sort of elevate this thing, you know, to places that other films didn't do better. It's just if this movie doesn't come out at this time in this way with these people involved for uh, for good and bad for all for all the people that that maybe shouldn't have been involved. If if we had a, a slightly more moralistic approach to entertainment. Uh, Still, that specific conflux of events have led us to where we are today, uh, for good or bad, in just advancing cinema. That it doesn't need to be confined by the kind of same rules that, you know, the old masters pioneered that, you know, you learn in film school. And, you know, the... The 90s were coming out of, you know, the sort of mainstream independent movement. And, and, you know, Singer was amongst the like Tarantinos and the Rodriguez's of like fresh new voice. And part of the path that he sparked was this idea of, you know, using the elements of of these really in-depth storytelling comic books and not just the broad stroke, brawny Superman iconography to tell a really human tale is something that would resonate and it's kind of hilarious and maybe proof that singer isn't exactly the, the driving force behind the success is how little of those lessons he took to Superman returns and how he he just completely reverse course on all that. And it it made a very lackluster thing, but X-Men like an argument can be made and they can use at least 45 minutes of the, of the preceding episode as, as proof point of, This is the most important film in the uh, lineage of superhero movies because without this, I think the MCU and the, in the version of the world we have today isn't what it is because all that all that we would have would be the Dark Knight style of things, which is how do we make a movie first, superhero second? And I think this is right. the first film that that led more with an ethos and an idea that was apparent in the in the comics, and not just with iconography of character and location and and powers and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd like to close with a quote. Okay, uh, this is from again from the Hollywood Reporter. This was uh, Matthew Lasky speaking on behalf of Glad. Uh, Glad at the time uh, championed both the X Men movie. And Brian Singer and Ian McKellen for at the time this was, you know, it was it was, it was great representation. But sure. now knowing what we know now, uh, it is critical when analyzing Singer's body of work that we center the experiences and trauma faced by his victims and put their continued well being first. Yes. And I think hitting on what you said, Wally, like um, the, it, it is alchemy that this movie came out when it did and it was yeah. directed by this person. Yeah. And as we keep going, uh, unfortunately, the success of this movie only seem to exacerbate and reward singers behavior. Right. And we would see it become more erratic and more dangerous uh, on the set of X2 that Scott will cover right. at times, literally endangering the lives of the actors on the screen. Yeah. And it really challenged my perception of like, like you said, like Scott, is he a talented filmmaker or whatnot? But yeah. I think, you know, there's a lot of talk has been said about separating the art from the artist. Mm. And I think You know, so oftentimes we find him bringing this baggage to the movie, you know, like I guess in closing thoughts, like it shouldn't matter, you know, like if he was like a good filmmaker or a bad filmmaker, Yeah. it's like, but we saw that he was seen as a necessary part of this equation. Sure. It's like, well, we can't take him out of it. Right. It's interesting that the franchise chose to hold on to him for as long as he did. Yeah. And And bring him back. And bring him back time and
2: time again. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Well, I mean, Very true. And, and, and not just bring it back time and time again. The movie, the franchise really only left the Brian Singer shadow once, and that was x3 like by the time you come like uh origins was happening but singer started to make inroads back with fox towards the end of origins and he's a producer on first class and yeah. you know, it's very much a part of his vision in terms of what's going on i mean thankfully matthew vaughn is such a, a distinctly stark visionary in terms of a director in his own right otherwise that's that's going to look just like everything else and i, th- I think right. it's you know, almost circumstance that something like Days of Future Past works, not because Brian Singer comes back, but because it, I think that the iconography of, of the cinema version of this franchise right. is so beloved at this point in time that you just had to put these elements together and it's going to work. But yeah, it, it is very interesting to see how long it took Fox to finally just step away from him completely. Well, I, I
1: think because he is a talented filmmaker, mm. it isn't as simple as like, well, he's, you know, not a good filmmaker because he behaves poorly mm-hmm. you know whether it, it but it's the question of like does it matter should it matter that he is maybe is a brilliant filmmaker or a singular mind and is responsible for the but if he's doing this does that become more or less important yeah. and is it moralistic or is it like it becomes bad business at a certain point right but we'll, we'll, we'll get into it
0: yeah, yeah 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 I don't have anything to add but I, I agree with everything you guys are saying it's just uh it's yeah, I'll have a lot more to say, I'm sure, um, next week with X2. Uh, Wally, thanks so much for joining us. Do you have anything to plug before you go?
2: Seek me out on the socials uh, at JW Wally, J W W A L L E, um, for just a more fun and highly uh, vocalized opinion about things. Listen, listen right. to my, listen to my uh, Spider Man minutes. There you go. That's my plug Yeah. Yeah, for
0: sure. You were on uh, Season 3 for Spider-Man 3, so uh, check that out. Um, Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Wally, and uh, we'll talk to you guys all next week with X2. Bye.